Doctor Who The Massacre by John Lucarotti Read by Peter Purvis Prologue The Doctor sat in the garden, which always reminded him of the Garden of Peace, when Stephen, no, not Stephen, his granddaughter Susan, and that nice young couple Barbara and Ian had their adventure with the Aztec Indians eons ago. But his reminiscences were elsewhere, as he browsed through a copy of Samuel Pepys's famous diary of a Londoner's life in the second half of the 17th century. He chuckled at the succinct observation and laid the open book down beside him on the bench. He looked around contentedly. His journeys through time and space in the TARDIS had come to a temporary halt. His differences, as he chose to refer to them with the Time Lords, of which, after all, he was one, were more or less resolved. This celestial retirement was a far from unpleasant condition when one's memories were so rich. He had had more than his fair share of adventure, and secretly he believed that his fellow lords were a mite jealous of his achievements. As well they might be, he murmured to a passing butterfly. That was the moment when he heard their voices all around him. Doctor, they intoned in unison. He looked up at the blue sky. Yes, gentlemen? There is a certain matter we would, they continued, but the doctor cut across them. Just one spokesman, if you don't mind, he said testily. I'm not deaf. The subject concerns your activities, one of them began. Ah, the doctor interjected. On the planet Earth in the 16th century, the voice continued. The year 1572, Earth time, to be precise. My memory's not quite what it was, gentlemen, the doctor replied, remembering in full his involvement in the momentous events of that year. Perhaps a further indication would help me to recall exactly where the TARDIS landed? Paris, France, the Time Lord said. Paris, France, the Doctor repeated slowly as if he were concentrating. Yes, um, I do seem to remember some kind of technical malfunction in the TARDIS which deposited me there, but uh, only briefly. I think an hour or so in their time, was it not? Several days, Doctor. Really? As long as that? The Doctor did his best to sound surprised. We shall accord you a period of time for reflection, Doctor, the spokesman continued. But be warned. Our research into the affair reveals that your conduct was highly suspect. Indeed, the doctor replied, and wondered how best to extricate himself from yet another difference. Chapter 1 The Roman Bridge Auberge The TARDIS landed with a jolt which almost threw the young astronaut Stephen Taylor off balance. But the Doctor did not seem to notice as he studied the parameters of the time-place-orientation printout on the central control panel of the time machine. 
Earth again, he observed, and waited for the digits of the time print to stop as they clicked by. But they didn't, at least not the last two. The first settled at one and the second at five, but the last two fluctuated between naught and nine indiscriminately. In the 1500s, we'll know exactly when in a moment, he added hopefully, but it was not to be. The numbers kept flickering by on the screen. No one should allow a kid like me to go up in a crate like this, Stephen joked, but his humour was lost on the doctor. Perhaps we should ask Mission Control for permission to return for an overhaul? I am Mission Control, the doctor replied sourly, and ordered Stephen to open the door as he switched off the main power drives, leaving the interior lighting on the auxiliaries. Stephen obeyed, and the stench of putrefaction which hit him in the face almost made him ill on the spot. Under a fierce sun in the clear blue sky, the TARDIS stood in the middle of mounds of decomposing rubbish. There was also a wooden fence a little higher than the TARDIS, which entirely surrounded them and had a door in it. Ah, perfect, the doctor observed as he looked out. He wore his cloak over his clothes, and his astrakhan hat was on his head. In one hand he held his silver-topped cane, in the other a handkerchief to his nose. Heh, putrescence, just what we need, he added as someone on the other side of the fence threw several rotting cabbages over it. Heh, couldn't be better. Your logic escapes me, Doctor, Stephen replied. My dear boy, the doctor said indulgently, people throw their rubbish over the fence rather than bring it in, which means that the TARDIS will remain unobserved here whilst we, he gestured airily, explore. What's to explore? The other side of the fence, since the aromas on this side of it give me a clue as to where we might be. The doctor momentarily lifted a corner of the handkerchief. Garlic, <laughs> definitely garlic, he said, and then told Stephen to fetch a cloak to wear so that they could begin their exploration. With the TARDIS locked behind them, the doctor picked his way delicately through the refuse towards the door. We'll need to use the EDF system when we return, he said, just before they reached it. What's that? Stephen asked. The external decontamination function, the doctor replied. Oh, a sort of spatial car wash, Stephen joked. The doctor glared at him, opened the door cautiously, and peered out. The fence was on a square of land on one side of the unpaved, pitted street, rutted by carriage wheels. The refuse that had not been thrown over the fence lay there, and was being picked at by emaciated dogs. The buildings on both sides were mostly adjoining, between one and two storeys high, with overhanging eaves and slated or thatched roofs. The walls were braced with wooden beams, and from most of the small open windows with slatted shutters came pungent odours of cooking. The people on the street, and they were many, stood or walked under the eaves or in the middle of it. There were hawkers pushing carts laden with meats, vegetables, fish and crustaceous seafoods of every kind. There was a knife sharpener with his grinding wheel, a carpenter with his mobile lathe, 
and the remainder of his tools in a leather haversack on his back. There were also vendors with their trays slung by straps from their necks, filled with every variety of cheaply made knick-knack. And all of them were selling their wares simultaneously at the top of their voices. They wore breeches, billowing shirts and clogs. Most of them had shoulder-length hair, frequently gathered in a bow at the back. Several had gaudy, gypsy-like bandanas on their heads, and a few wore curled, wide-brimmed flat hats. The women to whom they sold their goods wore full-flowing skirts and blouses, and their hair was mostly tied back with ribbons. Both buyer and seller negotiated with shouts and yells, shoulder shrugs, arms akimbo, the language of hands and the turning of backs, but each side knowing that shortly the bargain would be struck. The doctor stood in the middle of the street, sniffed, and announced, France! Stephen smiled. French is what they're speaking, doctor, he said. But when and where? Yeah, fifteen hundred and something, the doctor replied, as Stephen wandered over towards the side of the street, trying to read a sign in the ground floor window. Yeah, don't go there, the doctor shouted. Under the eaves or in the middle, but not there, Stephen. It's dangerous. Why? Stephen asked. And a moment later, an arm appeared from the first floor window of the house next door and emptied a chamber pot. Vive la France, Stephen muttered as he retreated hastily to the doctor's side. Oh, look at that, the doctor exclaimed, pointing to a shuttered shop. It's an apothecary's, and it's closed. Has been for some time by the look of it, Stephen added, as he looked at the faded paintwork on the sign. In 1563, by decree, all religious prejudice was abolished, and everyone had the right to practice according to his or her beliefs, the doctor stated. But in 1567... It was said that this pretext of religious freedom was undermining the king's authority. Really, Stephen said, unable to think of anything else. And amongst other restrictions, one that was imposed was that no apothecary was permitted to exercise his profession without a certificate of Catholicization, the doctor continued. Stephen stopped in the middle of the street and asked, why not? What had religion to do with a mortar and pestle? Ideas, young man, heretical ideas concerning life and death that were not in accord with the dogmas of the Church of Rome, the doctor replied, staring at the closed apothecary shop. The man who owned that place may well have retired normally, but equally so. He may have been a French Protestant, a Huguenot as they were called, still are for that matter who was driven out of business because of his religious convictions. Well, that's a bit unjust, Stephen sounded indignant. A bit? <laughs> the doctor raised one eyebrow. It got much worse than that, Stephen. He looked around again at the street, at the shop, and the people. I wonder, he murmured distractedly. What, doctor? Stephen asked. For a few moments, the doctor appeared not to have heard the question, and when he turned to face Stephen, 
His eyes seemed far away, and his voice was also distant. Where are we, and when? <laughs> Stephen was taken aback. In France, in the 1500s. You said so yourself. The doctor's eyes were suddenly sharp again, and his voice authoritative. But exactly where in France, and more precisely, what date in which year? Stephen waved an arm towards the people on the street. Ask one of them, he exclaimed. And be thought mad, the doctor retorted. That's a dangerous condition in which to be considered these days, he added knowingly. No, they are questions we must answer for ourselves. He looked up at the house roofs and beyond them. The skyline should tell us where. A cathedral spire, a, a tower, a chateau, a river. He paused and then exclaimed, That's it, the river. He went over to a vendor with a tray of cheap medallions and picked one up. The Queen Mother? Catherine of Medici? The vendor said quickly. And recently struck a good likeness, don't you think? Uh, very, the doctor replied and threw a small gold coin onto the tray. Um, where's the river? He asked casually. Oh, the same. <laughs> Carry straight on, sir. The vendor replied as he popped the coin into the money bag secured to his belt and hidden in his breeches pocket. You can't miss it. There's two bridges. The large one onto the island where the cathedral is and the small one off on the other side. Thank you, my good man, the doctor replied jauntily. Come along, Stephen, he added and marched on down the street. Once they were out of earshot, he confided that they were definitely in Paris. You heard what he said, Stephen. The Seine, the two bridges, Le Grand Pont and Le Petit Pont, and Ile de Cité with the Cathedral Notre Dame. But we still don't know the year, Stephen reminded them. If the apothecary was forced out of business, then it's post-67, the doctor reasoned. But a cursory glance at Notre Dame will confirm that. It will? Stephen questioned, not understanding. The doctor smiled at him indulgently. Notre Dame, like Rome, was not built in a day, the doctor explained. Nor in a century, not even a couple. Started in the second half of the twelfth, it was completed three centuries later. The last part being the broad steps leading up to it. 1575, uh, unless my memory serves me ill. Stephen chose not to observe that it frequently had in the past, and no doubt would again in the future. As they made their way along the street, which frequently twisted and turned one way and then another, they noticed that it widened and the houses became more imposing in their style and structure. Then Stephen saw the spire of Notre Dame above the rooftops and pointed it out to the doctor. That's where we want to be, the doctor conceded and turned off into another street in line with the spire. Stephen noted the name of the street they'd left. The Rue des Fosses, the street of ditches, which he thought was apt and the one they had entered, the Rue du Grand Pont, the street of the large bridge, which they could now see ahead of them. The bridge was made of stone and wide enough for two horse-drawn carriages to pass in opposite directions, unless it was too crowded, which invariably it was. 
and on either side a jumble of houses and shops precariously overhung the edges. As they approached the riverside, the doctor looked to his right at the imposing square building that stood on its own, not far from the Seine. The Louvre, the king's council chamber and the first important covered market in France, he observed. It's worth a visit. Then he paused briefly. Yes, Stephen asked. No new bridge to the island yet. That, that's why it was called Le Pont Neuf, he added, and started in 1578 by the king Henri III. So that puts us in the decade 67 to 77, Stephen remarked, smiling as the doctor mopped his brow, on a midsummer's day. A draught of chilled white wine wouldn't be amiss, the doctor replied, and there's bound to be several inns on the far side of the bridge. Once again, they made their way among the bustling throng, being pushed and squeezed to one side as a coach with a liveried driver and a coat of arms emblazoned on its doors forced a path through to the island. But once on the other side of the river, the crowd dispersed among the streets, leading away from the bridge. There's one, Stephen said, as he pointed to a sign with the name Auberge du Pont-Romain, hanging on the wall of a building, with benches and tables outside where people stood or sat, drinking and chatting. Why the Roman bridge in? he asked. Because the Romans built the original bridge, the doctor replied, though they didn't put up any houses. They're relatively recent, late 15th, early 16th century. You seem to know French history like the back of your hand, doctor, Stephen sounded slightly irked. This period intrigues me, the doctor said enigmatically as they went inside. The main room of the inn took up the entire ground floor of the building. In opposing walls were several leaded windows with tables of varying sizes, with benches or chairs spaced out across the floor. In front of the third wall stood the wooden bar, behind which were casks of wine sitting on their sides in cradles, each one tapped. Set in the other wall was a wide fireplace with a mantle, in the centre of which hung a centurion's helmet with Roman spears and sheathed stabbing swords on either side. The ceiling was low with heavy beams, and in one corner a staircase led to the rooms above. Almost all of the customers were outside, with only a few grouped around the bar, over which presided an aging, tall, cadaverous, balding landlord in black breeches, hose, blouse, and apron, who only spoke in half-whispers. "'Your pleasure, gentlemen?' he murmured as the doctor and Stephen approached the bar. The doctor glanced briefly at Stephen before replying. Uh, two goblets of a light white burgundy, as chilled as possible, the doctor replied. Oh, that'll be from the cask in the cellar, the landlord muttered. As cool a place as you will find on these hot-headed August days. The lad will fetch some up, he added, and turned to the eleven-year-old boy who was dressed identically to his master. After a brief whispered order, the boy lifted the trapdoor in one corner of the bar floor and disappeared from view. Now we have the month, Stephen remarked, whilst the doctor studied the group of young men who sat around the table. Everything about them, except for one, exuded social position and money. Their clothes, their knee boots, their swords, 
their rosetted or feathered hats, and, above all, their nonchalant air. The doctor grunted. Young bloods, they're always the same, anywhere, any time. Not him, Stephen pointed to the odd man out, whose clothes and attitude were less flamboyant than the others. He's employed by one of them, possibly as a secretary, and what's more, I don't think he's French, the doctor replied. He doesn't look it. More German, I'd say. One of the young men looked at his companions. Are your glasses charged, my friends? he asked, and without waiting for a reply, called to the landlord for another carafe of wine. We'll make a toast. The more conservatively dressed member of the group glanced apprehensively at the doctor and Stephen and turned back to the young man who'd spoken. Be careful, Gaston, he said, covering his mouth with his hand. Gaston also glanced at the doctor and Stephen and then laughed. The trouble with you, Nicholas, is that you're too cautious. And you are too provocative, Nicholas replied in earnest. Gaston glanced over at the doctor and Stephen again with a smile as the landlord came to the table and refilled their goblets. Gaston picked his up as another man came into the bar. Nicholas looked at Gaston with alarm. Don't be indiscreet, he warned as Gaston stood up and raised his glass. To Henri of Navarre, our Protestant king, Gaston called out. The toast had been proposed and had to be seconded. The others stood up, including the reluctant Nicholas, and raised their goblets. To Henri of Navarre! they called out in unison and drank. The man at the bar spun around to face them, and grabbing the doctor's as-yet-untouched goblet of wine, raised it in front of his face. And to his bride of yesterday, our Catholic Princess Marguerite, he cried. Then he gulped down the wine in one swallow, as Gaston spluttered and hit himself on the chest with a clenched fist. The doctor drew in his breath sharply as Gaston, recovering quickly with a cough, looked at the stranger in mild amusement and mock astonishment. Simon Duval, he exclaimed. What a surprise to find you in a tavern that's rid of rigid Catholic dogma. Then he turned to the landlord. Antoine Marc, what decent wines have you to offer? he asked, swirling the rest of his wine around the goblet. Oh, we sell the best Bordeaux to be found hereabouts, sire, the landlord replied in a mumble. Bordeaux? It's such a thin Catholic concoction. He turned to his companions in disdain. Hardly fit for the altar, he added. Nicholas leant across the table in warning. Gaston, he exclaimed as Duval took a step forward, his hand reaching for the hilt of his sword then checked himself and eyed the group coldly. For his part, Gaston waved each arm in the air one at a time. How would you rather I fought the duel, Simon? With my right hand or my left? He asked nonchalantly. Duval turned to Nicholas. For a free-thinking German, Herr Muss, I congratulate you on your good sense, he said and inclined his head to the conservatively dressed Nicholas. But I'm dismayed to find you in a tavern where our Princess Marguerite is seemingly game for insult. 
Gaston raised an eyebrow. Insult, Simon. I'm not aware of any said or intended against the noble lady. Indeed, quite the opposite. I asked Antoine Marc for a wine as befits her rank and future. A bold burgundy of character, don't you agree, Nicholas? He smiled at his friend, who stood grim-faced across the table, and then, without waiting for a reply, ordered a carafe and more glasses from the landlord. The doctor and Stephen watched in silence as the confrontation was played out. Both Gaston and Simon Duval were tall, handsome young men who bore themselves with the authority of social status and wealth, although Gaston's air was the more languid. He was blonde and fair-skinned with pale blue eyes, where Simon's complexion was more Latin and his eyes were brown. The barboy carried the tray of goblets and set it down on the table. Antoine Marc brought over the carafe of wine and poured equal measures into each glass. Then he withdrew to safety behind the bar. Gaston toyed with the stem of his goblet. What was the toast again, Simon? he asked. The health, Vicomte Laurent, of our Catholic Princess Marguerite, Simon replied through clenched teeth. So it was, Laurent replied lightly, looking around. And so, let it be, gentlemen, he raised his glass. To Henri's bride, he said, and drank. Duval and the others followed suit. Is honour satisfied, Simon? Laurent asked as he reclined again in his chair. For the time being, Vicomte Laurent, Duval replied as he put down his goblet and walked to the bar. I owe this gentleman a glass of white wine, he said, pointing to the doctor. Be so kind as to serve both him and his companion another. He placed a coin on the bar. <laughs> That's uh, most agreeable of you, sir, the doctor replied as Duval nodded briefly to him. And then, without looking at the group at the table, left the inn. As soon as Duval had gone, Laurent burst out laughing. His friend Nicholas Muss looked at him angrily. Why do you provoke quarrels, Gaston? he demanded. Aren't things difficult enough for us as they are? I would have thought that after yesterday's marriage, we are, for the first time, my friend, in a position of strength, Laurent replied. And the Catholics must accept that we are no longer the underdogs, he stood up. Let's go to the Louvre and hear the latest gossip of the court. He threw a gold coin on the table and, with a curt bow to the doctor and Stephen, led the way out. The doctor and Stephen watched while Antoine Marc poured their goblets of wine. Then the doctor picked his up and beckoned to Stephen to follow him to a table where they sat down out of earshot of the landlord. It is the 19th of August in the year 1572, the doctor whispered dramatically. Is that a guess or a good judgment, Stephen queried, and if the latter, what's it based on? Their conversation. The doctor glanced at the landlord pocketing the coin that Gaston had left on the table, while the barboy put the empty goblets on a tray. Then the doctor leant forward confidentially. The young Protestant King Henri of Navarre married the Catholic Princess Marguerite of Valois on the 18th of August, and Duval said the nuptials were celebrated yesterday. Yes, 
I heard that, Stephen confirmed. In which case, this is neither a place nor a time in which to tarry, the doctor said categorically. Then drink up and we'll move on, Stephen replied. The doctor reached across the table and grabbed Stephen's hand. No, first, there is someone here I wish to talk to, the doctor said and explained that it concerned a scientific matter which would hold no interest for Stephen. A simple exchange of ideas to give me a better understanding of his work, he concluded. But you've just said we should be on our way, Stephen protested. There's no immediate danger and I shall be gone for only a few hours at the most, the doctor assured him. What's his subject? Stephen asked, his curiosity aroused. Uh, he's uh, an apothecary. <laughs> the doctor tried to sound offhand. Not struck off by any chance, Stephen remembered the doctor's distant look when they were in the street and the murmured, I wonder. That's uh, rather what I hope to um, uh, find out, the doctor answered uncomfortably. And you know where his shop is? Stephen persisted. Well, the general area, uh, yes, the doctor sounded vague. Then I'll help you find him, Stephen smiled. It'll cut the time in half and then we can be off. I'd, uh, I'd rather you didn't. The doctor was on the defensive. He's a, a secretive man and does not take kindly to strangers. So you know him? The doctor shook his head. Only read about him in some half-destroyed documents I once found. His, his name was uh, Prenlau, Preslau, and he was on to something quite important. But the documents didn't say what. As I've said, they were half ruined and he was only a footnote. Stephen sipped his wine. But an intriguing one and you want to play detective. The doctor semi-smiled. <laughs> I suppose you could put it that way, he admitted. Then off you go, doctor, and I wish you luck. But where shall we meet and when? Stephen asked. The doctor thought for a moment before replying. Here, Stephen, this evening, after the cathedral has rung the Vesper bell, which can be heard all over Paris. He put his hand in his pocket, took out some coins, and placed them on the table. You'll need this, he added, but stay out of mischief, religion, and politics. <laughs> well, the last two are one and the same, from what I can gather, Stephen replied, scooping the money into his pocket. And spell trouble, young man, shall be warned. Then the doctor looked at the landlord. Uh, is it possible to find a carriage hereabouts, landlord? There's uh, always one or two for hire in front of Notre Dame, sir, Antoine Marc murmured, looking off into the middle distance. Shall I send the lad to fetch one? No, no, we'll walk, the doctor replied. Uh, what do I owe you? Nothing, sir. I took the liberty of permitting the other gentleman to pay for all four glasses. It seemed the proper thing to do, he whispered as convincingly as he could. The doctor stood up and left ten sous on the table. I'll walk with you, Stephen volunteered, and together they left the auberge. Notre Dame Cathedral stood at the back of a large square on the eastern end of the island, and Stephen noticed that the broad steps in front of it were completed. 
He remarked on the fact to the doctor, but in reply received only a non-committal grunt. On one side of the square were four carriages. The first three were ornate with crested doors and plumed horses. The fourth was less elaborate, and the horse had a careworn air. That'll be the one for hire, the doctor observed. The other three must be for the clerical hierarchy by the look of them. An ecclesiastical conclave, Stephen suggested. And no doubt plotting some mischief in the name of God, the doctor added, and looked up at the driver. St. Martin's Gate in Montparnasse, he ordered, then opened the door and sat down inside before looking down at Stephen. Now, don't forget to be at the auberge. After the toxins sounded, Stephen completed the phrase, and the doctor looked mildly exasperated. Not the toxin, the vesper bell, he said, and then told the driver to move on. The toxin's a warning bell, he threw at Stephen as the carriage clattered away. What neither of them knew was that Stephen's name for the bell was by far the more accurate for both of them. Chapter 2 Echoes of Wassi Simon de Vale lurked under an archway near the bridge, which gave him an uninterrupted view of the auberge, and withdrew further back into the shadows as Vicomte Laurent, Nicholas Muss, and the remainder of their party came out and sauntered in his direction towards the bridge. Duval strained to overhear their conversation, but even their laughter was drowned out by the noises of the crowd. He thought that it was most probably some vicious pleasantry at the expense of the Catholic princess, which gave them such perverse delight. Then it was his turn to chuckle as he reminded himself how short-lived their airs and graces would be. Shortly afterwards he watched with curiosity as the doctor and Stephen left. He wondered who they might be. Certainly they did not appear to be Frenchmen, and his inclinations were that they were English, Protestants, no doubt, in Paris, to support the Huguenot cause. Why else would they have been in the Auberge du Pont Romain, which was becoming known among Catholics as a meeting place for Huguenots? He decided that their presence would be worth reporting to his new superior, the abbot of Amboise, who was arriving that same evening to replace Cardinal Lorraine, who had been summoned to Rome three days before the royal wedding festivities. Duval had not yet met the abbot, but knew of him, by reputation, as a man of God, who sternly opposed all religious leanings not embraced by the Holy See. Then he went back to the auberge. A word with you, landlord, he said, pointing at Antoine Marc as he crossed over to the bar. Antoine Marc looked alarmed and began mumbling something about the change from the money for the stranger's drinks, but Duval cut him short. Who were they? Do you know? he asked. I've never seen them before, sir, Antoine Marc muttered. Had the others? Vicon Laurent and Nicolas Must, do you think? Duval jingled some coins in his pocket. Antoine Marc pursed his lips. Not that they gave any sign, sir, but of course 
It's difficult to say these days. He drew out the last few murmured words to emphasise them. What with the problems and me being a landlord obliged to serve all who enter. And most of the time you know your customers, Duval persisted. If you are referring to the Huguenot gentlemen, oh, sir, oh, yes, I know them well. Antoine Marc's whisper was sly. The Vicomte Laurent and Nicolas Masson and their associates frequently take a glass of wine here. He raised a protesting hand. Not, mark you, sir, by my choice, but a man must live and a glass of wine down anyone's gullet, be he Catholic or Huguenot, puts two sous in my till. Watch and listen and I'll put in more. Duval was brusque as he placed some coins on the counter. Antoine Marc inclined his head slightly, took a goblet from under the bar, placed it in front of Duval, and poured in some wine from a carafe. Your continued good health, sir, Antoine Marc murmured as he scooped up the coins. Stephen had stood watching the doctor's carriage trundle away across the small bridge on the south side of the island until it was out of sight. Then he looked up at the ornate twin towers of the cathedral in front of him and decided to go inside. As he walked across the square, he passed the three stationary carriages with their liveried drivers immobile in their seats under the broiling sun. One of the horses pawed the ground briefly with a hoot. The second swished its tail, and as Stephen mounted the steps to the massive, intricately carved western entrance, the third horse nodded its plumed head. Stephen went into the shade and the coolness of the interior. Candles burned in groups on either side of the main altar, and he looked around at the massive pillars decorated with tapestries and heraldic banners stretching up to the central dome high above him. There was a faint, lingering fragrance of incense in the air, and as he sat down in a pew, he had a fleeting vision of the majestic pomp and circumstance of the previous day's marriage. Now Notre Dame wore a mantle of serenity, yet Stephen had seen and heard the confrontation in the auberge, and the doctor had warned him that it was not a time for them to linger in. Involuntarily he shivered, and wished that the doctor were with him. Now, that was absurd. He'd been in scrapes before, both with and without the doctor, in the past, and in the future, on earth and in the galaxies. Yet here, in the peace and quiet of the cathedral, he felt disquieted and decided that the sunshine outside was preferable. As he stood up to leave, he saw three clergymen hurrying along one aisle towards the door. They were richly dressed in flowing robes and capes with skullcaps on their heads. They were talking among themselves, and Stephen overheard one of the priests, a well-built, rotund man, say in a booming voice, With the most illustrious in Rome, my lord abbot will allow them no shriving time. God be praised. One of the other two, a cadaverous man whose hands clutched the golden cross hanging around his neck, chuckled. <laughs> Not even a few seconds for vespers, he added as they swept out through the open doorway. The words shriving time struck a distant chord in Stephen's memory. 
Hadn't they something to do with death, he asked himself, as he went out into the sweltering mid-afternoon sunlight? As he worried the phrase in his brain, his feet led him instinctively back towards the auberge. It's from a play, he said aloud. Oh, come on, Taylor, you've acted in it, said those very words, shriving time. He began to sound angry as he struggled to remember. When you were training to become an astronaut, come on, think. Name the plays you were in, idiot. He was furious now and did not see the young girl who came running round the corner and collided with him. Whoa! <laughs> he called out as he grabbed her by the shoulders, spinning both of them around to keep their balance. What's the hurry? The girl looked at Stephen in terror, then wrenched herself free from his hold and ran into the auberge. Stephen, taken aback, looked at the open door, but from where he stood, he could not see inside. Get out of my way! A voice snapped behind him, and Stephen was roughly pushed to one side. Watch it! Stephen exclaimed as the man wearing an officer's uniform, with a drawn sword, and two other men with pikes, stormed into the auberge. Stephen moved over to the entrance and looked in. The officer stood with his legs astride and pointed his sword around the room at the customers. Where's the girl? he demanded. Vicomte Laurent, Nicolas Muss and their friends were seated back at their table with goblets of wines. Laurent had his feet on the table. Don't point that thing at me, fellow, said Laurent. His light tone carried a hint of menace as he lowered his feet leisurely, one at a time, to the floor. I am the most illustrious Cardinal Lorraine's officer of the guard, and my orders are to apprehend the girl. The officer tried to sound impressive. So, where is she? Well, I am the Vicomte Laurent, he replied nonchalantly as he stood up and rested his hand on the hilt of his sword, and I'm curious to know why three grown-up armed men should be pursuing a slip of a girl. She's a serving wench, sire, who's run away from the most illustrious cardinal's house, and I'm to fetch her back, the officer replied. But he's away, isn't he? Laurent bantered. Who, sire? Lorraine. In Rome or somewhere? Laurent glanced at Muss for confirmation. The officer drew in his breath sharply, but realized that a sword and two pikes were no match for the young men around the table. She has been assigned to the abbot of Amboise's staff, the officer persisted. Laurent studied the tip of one of his boots before replying. If she cared so little for one cleric's service as to run away, I doubt that she'd fare any better in another's, he chuckled. Above all, that of Amboise. Is the girl here, sire? The officer chose to ignore the scarcely veiled insults. Yes, Laurent replied. She's crouched under the bar. Antoine Marc, who stood behind it, looked alarmed. Seize her, the officer ordered the pikeman. No, Laurent countermanded sharply. Leave her be. The officer hesitated before turning back to him. Vicomte Laurent, my lord, the abbot of Amboise shall learn of this occurrence when he arrives this evening, and he will no doubt act accordingly. No doubt, Laurent agreed affably. 
and the officer of the guard with his two pikemen turned on their heels and left the auberge. Stephen stood to one side to let them pass. Then Laurent saw him. Ah, this morning's stranger, he called out and turned to Mus. Remember him, Nicholas, when we made sport with Simon Duval? Without waiting for a reply, he turned back to Stephen. Come and join us, he offered. Stephen crossed the room towards them. What will you do about the girl, he asked, as Antoine Marc brought another goblet from the bar. Oh, yes, the girl, Laurent exclaimed in mock surprise. I'd forgotten about her. He clapped his hands. You can stand up now, wench, he called, and the girl rose cautiously from behind the bar. Come here, no harm will fall upon you. The girl edged her way towards the table while Antoine Marc filled Stephen's goblet. You shouldn't play those sort of games here, sire, the landlord half-whispered to Laurent. It'll give my establishment a bad reputation. A bad one? <laughs> Laurent laughed as he sank back into his chair and pointed at the girl. As a defender of helpless maidens, how can that possibly be bad? He indicated the chair and invited Stephen to sit down. English, aren't you? And in Paris for yesterday's celebrations? English, yes, but uh, we only arrived today and uh, are just passing through, Stephen replied. Laurent picked up his goblet. Where's your friend, the, the older man? Uh, he's gone to Montparnasse to visit an apothecary. Behind the bar, Antoine Marc had pricked up his ears. Laurent raised his eyebrows. Is he sick? he asked, and added that there were plenty of apothecaries in the immediate neighbourhood. Stephen explained that his friend was a doctor and that the visit was a professional one, an exchange of ideas. Mussy's eyes narrowed. A practising apothecary? he inquired. I don't know, Stephen replied. What's his name? Stephen thought for a moment. The doctor did mention it, a uh, Premlin, something like that. Preslin? Charles Preslin? Must stated. A Huguenot. Laurent snorted with delight. Nicholas was fishing to subtly discover whether you're pro-Catholic or for us. Stephen smiled. I'm neutral, he said. Well, we, as you may have gathered, are not. Laurent glanced at the girl who stood meekly beside the table. And beating Catholics is my favourite sport. So I've noticed, Stephen admitted with a laugh. Laurent picked up his goblet. Here's a toast to your Queen Bess, our ally. Long may she reign. They all rose and drank to Queen Elizabeth's health. Then he turned his attention to the girl. What's your name, child? he asked. And Chaplet, she replied. In the service of the most illustrious Cardinal Lorraine. He made the title sound ludicrous. Yet a good Catholic girl like you runs away? Why? I'm not a Catholic, sir. Anne's mouth was set stubbornly. Laurent looked at the others, then at her in astonishment. 
"'You're a Huguenot?' he exclaimed. "'Yes, sir,' she replied proudly. Laurent chortled. "'We must send you back.' He rubbed his hands together gleefully. "'And have a spy in the household.' "'Oh, no, sir. Please not that,' she begged. "'I don't know what they would do to me.' "'For running away?' "'Oh, a good thrashing, I suppose.' Laurent's manner was only half-teasing. But now that you're in contact with us, it'd be worth it, surely. But it wouldn't be for running away, sir. It'd be for something I overheard. Everyone around the table glanced at one another before leaning towards her, their faces serious. What did you overhear, Anne? Laurent measured out his words. Wassy, she replied. Stephen did not understand. But the others obviously did. What about Wassy? Laurent's voice hardened. It might happen again before the week's out, she said, wringing her hands. There was a catch in her voice as she added, That's where I come from, and that's where my father was murdered. Laurent reached out, placed his hands on Anne's shoulders, and looked directly into her eyes. It's very... Very important, Anne, that you remember every word you overheard. Anne nodded and took a deep breath. I was walking along a corridor in the servants' quarters, and one where the cardinal's guards are housed, and I passed that door which was open. There, there were two men in the room. One of them was the officer who came here to take me back, and the, the other was a man I didn't know, but the officer called him Roger when he said that there'd be more celebrations before the week was out and that it'd be just like Wassy all over again. Stephen broke the ensuing silence. May I ask where Wassy is and what happened there? Nicholas Muss told him that Wassy was a small town about 200 kilometres to the east of Paris. In March 1562, some soldiers under the leadership of the staunchly Catholic Duke François de Guise had massacred 25 Huguenots who were attending a service in their Reformed church there. Stephen glanced at Anne. My brother and I escaped by clambering up into the loft and jumping from the roof onto a hayrick before the church was set on fire, she said simply. My father was not so lucky. It was the spark which ignited the religious wars in France, Muss added, and there have been sporadic outbreaks of violence all over the country ever since. Francois de Guise was assassinated within the year. Sudden death without time to confess became the rule of thumb between Huguenots and Catholics, but we hope that yesterday's marriage will bring about a reconciliation. Suddenly a chord was struck in Stephen's brain. He knew the play where he'd spoken those lines mentioning shriving time. They were from Hamlet. He had played the prince who, plotting revenge for his father's murder, cries out, He should those bearers put to sudden death, not shriving time allowed. Of course, shriving time, the time allowed to a condemned man so that he may make peace with God before his execution. What had the cleric said? With the most illustrious in Rome, Stephen now knew who he was, 
My Lord Abbot will allow them no shriving time. The other priests had added, Not even a few seconds for vespers. Combined with Anne's story, it could only mean a Catholic conspiracy against them. But who were them? He decided to let Gaston and Nicholas solve that one. Now let me tell you what I overheard earlier this afternoon, Stephen said, remembering not to mention the play that hadn't yet been written. It was meaningless to me until I heard what Anne had to say. He repeated word for word the incident in the cathedral. There was a long silence after he'd finished, which was finally broken by Laurent, who looked at Anne and then at Mus. Safekeeping for the girl, Nicholas. Where? His voice was brisk, authoritative. The Admiral's house, Mus replied without hesitation. Where better than the residence of the Queen Mother's closest adviser? He turned to Stephen. Admiral de Coligny, he's a Huguenot, one of us. And as his secretary, I can keep an eye on her. Laurent looked at two of his young companions. Fabrice, you and Alain take her there, he ordered before turning to Stephen. Now, what about you, Englishman? He paused and then smiled. Forgive my ill manners, I have not introduced myself nor asked your name. He bowed his head slightly. I am Gaston, Vicomte Laurent, the personal aide to His Majesty Henri of Navarre. My name's Stephen Taylor, Stephen said, and, half raising his hands in a mild protest, added, But I'm not involved. I've told you all I know, and now I'm waiting for my friend, the doctor, to return, as we're both just passing through. Then I wish you well and a safe journey home, Laurent replied, and turned to the others. Gentlemen, we have matters to attend to. He walked over to the bar and placed a coin on it. That should be sufficient, I think, including a glass each for the Englishman and his friend when he comes back, he said and, followed by Muss and the remaining companion, went outside. Antoine Marc pocketed the coin and thought how much more would be coming to him when he next spoke to Simon Duval. Once they were on the street, Laurent took Muss by the arm. Them, he said urgently and repeated it. Us. All of us. That's unthinkable. We're more than ten thousand strong in Paris. Then a faction, Muss replied. Not your master, for that would bring about a catastrophe for both causes. I agree, but nonetheless, a group of us has been selected for the abbot's justice. Laurent almost spat out the last word. But which one? Must spread his hands in despair. If I were a Catholic, which, merciful heaven, I'm not, I would consider that the most contentious Huguenots more so than our clergy, are those whose theories and experiments had them disenabled in 67, Laurent replied. The apothecaries, Mus exclaimed. Laurent pointed back at the auberge. And if what that young Englishman said is true, we have only a few hours in which to warn them. Until vespers. So we've no time to waste. They both strode off purposefully, forgetting that the doctor had gone to exchange ideas with a Huguenot apothecary named Preslin.
Chapter 3 The Apothecary The windows were open, yet the heat inside the carriage was stifling as it rattled across the cobblestone streets towards the Sorbonne, jiggling the doctor about and making him perspire profusely. But his physical discomfort was far outweighed by the curiosity which had led him to make the spur-of-the-moment decision to visit Charles Preslin. The carriage came to a halt, and the driver, leaning over, looked down. Ah, that'll be twenty sous, he said, and the doctor handed him thirty as he stepped out. The driver tipped his hat, shook the reins, and the carriage rumbled away. The doctor looked around him. The Sorbonne Tower stood in the centre of a small circus from which six busy streets radiated like the spokes of a wheel. The doctor studied each of them in turn, looking for the mortar and pestle sign of an apothecary. He could see three such signs within the first thirty metres, all in different streets, and set off to investigate each one in turn, knowing that, regardless of the one he chose to begin with, the shop he wanted would be the third which, of course, it was, and, moreover, it was closed and had been for some considerable time by the state of it. The window shutters were closed, the door locked, and the nameplate barely legible, but the doctor managed to discern the name, Chaz Preslau. He moved back into the centre of the crowded street to obtain a better overall view of the building. It was a two-storey house, similar to the ones they'd seen when they left the TARDIS on the rubbish dump, there were two windows on each floor, and three of them were shuttered. The fourth and smallest was the top one on the left-hand side. At least someone lived there, the doctor thought, and noticed a narrow lane between two houses a few metres further down the street. I'll try the back door, the doctor muttered to himself and walked towards it, counting front doors on the way. The length of the lane was littered with rubbish and opened out onto a general area of wasteland between the backs of the houses. Some people had tried to cultivate their small patches of soil in which vegetables struggled to grow. Others kept pigs or hens in compounds, and there were a few tethered goats. The doctor put his handkerchief to his nose as he made his way among the washing lines slung between the back windows and poles stuck in the earth. He counted back doors as he went along until he reached the one he calculated would be Preslin's. He knocked on it with his cane and waited. No one came to the door, so he looked up and saw that all the windows were shuttered. He knocked again, but there was still no reply. There's no good you doing that. He won't come to the door, a rosy-cheeked stout woman announced from her window in the house next door as she prodded some washing out onto the line with a stick. The doctor looked up at her and raised his hat. Pray, how does one attract Monsieur Preslin's attention, madame? You open the door and you go inside, she replied. Oh, thank you, madam, the doctor said, and did as she had advised, closing the door behind him. Enough light filtered through the rear shutters to allow the doctor to make out his surroundings. The room appeared to be an abandoned laboratory with bottles, jars, files and jugs stacked on several shelves around the walls. In the middle of the room there was a table, covered with dust, with mortars and pestles and measuring instruments lying on it. There was a door which the doctor decided led to the shop, so he opened it, 
and went into the short corridor which lay beyond. On his right was a narrow staircase winding up to the floors above. The doctor stood still and listened. He could hear no sounds. Eh, uh, Monsieur Presler? He called out and waited. There was no reply. Charles Presler? He repeated. But again, there was only silence. He sighed and opened the door in front of him. He was right. It led to the shop, with its dust-covered counter and cobweb shelves. He went back into the corridor and mounted the stairs. He looked into both rooms on the first floor. One of them was a bedroom and the other appeared to be a library. He went up to the second floor and opened the door of the room with the open shutter. A man sat at a desk by the window. He was writing with a quill pen in a ledger and several sheets of paper lay on the desk. The man did not look up as the doctor came into the room. Is that you, David? he asked, his pen still scratching on the parchment. No, it's not, the doctor replied, and waited as the man carefully laid down his pen on the desk, and then slowly, as if preparing himself for a shock, turned around as he removed the small half-spectacles from the tip of his nose. And uh, who may you be, sir? he asked quietly and politely. A doctor, the doctor replied. There are many such, the man replied as he stood up, with clothes of different cuts, medicine, philosophy, the sciences, even the arts. He studied the doctor's cape for a moment before asking what lay under it. The doctor flicked it back off his shoulders and the man stared at him for a while before speaking. A strange attire he observed finally. The doctor smiled. <laughs> of my own design, he said. I travel a lot and cannot abide discomfort. <laughs> then he hesitated fractionally before asking, You are Charles Presler, I presume? A doctor of what, did you say? The man said as the doctor took stock of him. He was in his fifties, of average height, slim, balding, with shoulder-length straggling grey hair, and with intelligent eyes and a careworn face. Actually, I didn't say, the doctor replied and then smiled. A bit of everything, really. A, a doctor of dabbling, I suppose, who's looking for an apothecary named Charles Presla. To what end? the man asked. It refers to a footnote I read in a scientific journal, the doctor explained, and the man smiled wryly. Oh, that, he said, and admitting that he was Preslan, continued, It dates back to 66, when a few colleagues and I were engaged in some research. It was just before the Certificate of Catholicization was brought into force, and that, of course, put paid to our work. Which was? the doctor asked innocently. Presline's eyes darkened with suspicion, and stretching his left arm out, he raised his forefinger and waved it like a metronome in front of the doctor's face. <laughs> he clicked with his tongue. 
You do not catch me like that, sir. I am too old and wily to confess conveniently to heresy. I assure you, Monsieur Prislan, that was far from my intention. The doctor's indignation was suddenly broken by the sound of feet hurrying up the stairs. An armed, heavily set man barged breathlessly into the room. The ferrets are abroad, Charles, he gasped, before he saw the doctor. Who's he? he demanded, his hand moving to the hilt of his sword. A weasel, perhaps, I don't know. But he's been asking questions, Preslan replied. The man half drew his sword. They're using the abbot's arrival as an excuse to round us up, so let's dispatch him and leave his carcass to the ferrets. Just a minute, the doctor cut in angrily. I came here in good faith to talk to Monsieur Preslin, and now I'm being called a weasel, and you're proposing to leave my body to the ferrets. I've no idea what you're talking about. Preslin hesitated before admitting that the doctor might be telling the truth. And if he's not, the other one asked, he'll tell the ferrets our escape route. No, we can't risk it. He was adamant and took a step towards the doctor as he drew his sword. Push up your sword, David, Preslan spoke sharply, and then turned to the doctor. I must oblige you to come with us, sir, he said. That's folly, David protested, pointing his sword at the doctor. If he's innocent, he'll have time to prove it, Preslan replied. And if we find he's guilty, well then, nothing is lost. Just keep an eye on him, David, whilst I tidy up. As Preslan busied himself at the desk, the doctor asked questions. He wanted to know who the ferrets and weasels were, and was told that they were two species of Catholic militants, both as unpleasant as they were dangerous. Preslan closed the shutters and went into the other room to collect his jacket. I know your face, I've seen it before, David remarked unpleasantly. It was a long time ago when you were younger, say, ten years, about then. The doctor shook his head. You're very much mistaken, sir, he replied. We've never met until now, and once I have secured my release, you may rest assured that you will never see me again. I've met this man, David said aggressively to Preslan as he came back into the room. Where? Preslan asked, eyeing the doctor with renewed suspicion. I don't remember, yet it was not a pleasant encounter, that much I can recall. David's voice was filled with menace. But I'll get it, have no doubt. Lead the way down the stairs, but prudently, Preslan advised the doctor, as David indicated the open door with his sword. It occurred to the doctor that he might just have enough time to slam it shut. And don't touch the door, whatever you think to do, Preslan added for good measure. They went downstairs and stood in the corridor. Preslan opened the door into the shop and beckoned the doctor to go through. I think you're still mistaken to insist that he accompanies us, David stated as they passed into the shop. We'll debate it later, Preslan replied as he crossed over to a shelf behind the counter, and lifting off a large jar filled with dark green liquid, pressed the panel of wood behind it. A section of shelves the width of a door swung silently open. 
Beyond it was a flight of stone stairs leading downward. Preslan took a taper from under the counter and lit it. Then the three of them left the shop and went down the stairs with Preslan carefully pulling the secret entrance shut after him. With the flickering taper as their only light, they made their way carefully down the steps until they reached the side of a narrow tunnel which led away in both directions. In front, the doctor hesitated at the entrance. Turn left, Preslan said, and they made their way along the tunnel. The doctor noted that there was a slight cool, dry breeze and that several other sets of stairs led into the tunnel. They walked without talking, their footsteps reverberating off the walls into the distance. Suddenly, they saw another flickering taper ahead of them. Jules? Preslan called. Yes, Charles, echoed the reply. Are there many others? David shouted. A peal of laughter came bouncing off the walls towards them, followed by the same voice. You know how swiftly Laurent and Muss can move. Laurent and Muss? The doctor immediately recognized the names and thought he could see a ray of light in the tunnels of his mind, a way to extricate himself from the predicament in which he found himself. Ah, the gentleman's referring to Vicomte Gaston Laurent and his friend Nicholas Muss, I believe, he said. You know them? Preslan asked. Oh, coincidentally, the doctor tried to sound nonchalant. This afternoon, just before I came to see you, my companion and I drank a goblet of wine with them in the Roman Bridge Inn. How fortuitous, David replied sarcastically, that you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Did you speak to them? Preslan asked. Well, uh, not exactly, no, the doctor conceded. They were having an altercation with a man named uh, Simon Duval. That pig? The words erupted from David's mouth. What was the row about? Preslan put the question quietly in an effort to calm down David. The doctor told him everything that had happened whilst he was at the inn. David laughed at Laurent's jibes to Duval. Ah, oh, Laurent is a bold one, a man after my own heart, he exclaimed. But lacking in discretion, Preslan said. Exactly what Nicholas Mass remarked, the doctor added. No matter, Laurent has the Admiral's protection and that's as good as the Queen Mother's. David was scornful of Preslan's concern. Only by the law can they catch us out which is why there are ferrets and weasels, he emphasized the word, in our midst. Beyond the taper in front of them was a faint glow of light and the doctor became aware of the murmur of voices. Then the taper disappeared to the right. It sounds as though everyone was warned in time, Preslan remarked as the light became brighter and the voices louder. They reached the end of the tunnel and on turning to the right entered a large, well-lit, vaulted cave. There were tables laden with bread, cheeses, cold meats and flasks of wine drawn from the casks which lined one side. 
There were at least fifty people in the cave, men, women, and children. And the air was filled with the babble of voices as the children played. The women prepared food or came from or went into small cubicles which were cut into the walls and then stood and talked amongst themselves. What have you there, Charles? A heavy-set, bearded man asked Preslin as they came into the cave. He indicated the doctor. He claims he's a traveller passing through who came to talk to me about my work, Preslin replied. Not one word of which I believe, David's voice rang out in hatred. He's a spy, a Catholic spy, a weasel sent among us by Charles de Guise, the most illustrious cardinal of Lorraine. One of the listeners, a man of medium height and flaming red hair, rubbed his chin thoughtfully. You're talking rubbish, the doctor retorted angrily. What Charles Preslin has said is the truth. The tale you've told him, retaliated David, but I know your face. As I do, the red-haired man said as deep laughter began to rumble up from his belly. <laughs> He's not a spy. He's much more than that. Then who is he, David cried, and the red-haired man beckoned him over and whispered in his ear. I knew it, David shouted in exultation, looking at the doctor with undisguised hatred. I'll dispatch him now. No, the red-haired man ordered. We can put him to better use. Who is he? Preslan asked. But before David could answer, the red-haired man hushed him and then beckoned Preslan to his side and whispered in his ear. Preslan looked at the doctor in disbelief and dismay as one man whispered to the next. Then they all drew their swords and stared at the doctor. Whoever you think I am, I'm not, the doctor said in exasperation. Now, kindly allow me to leave as I have an important rendezvous by Notre Dame at Vespers. All the men hooted with laughter as Preslan went over to the doctor. It is one I fear... You will not keep, my lord, he said gently, but with venom in his voice. So, pray be seated. The doctor looked around, took the situation into account, and did the only thing possible. He sat down. End of Disc 1 Disc 2 Chapter 4 Double Trouble In spite of the disagreeable confrontation with Laurent and his companions at the auberge, Simon Duval sat at his desk in the Cardinal's palace and was not dissatisfied with his day's work so far. He had dispatched troops to round up the dissident Huguenot apothecaries in accordance with the abbot of Amboise's orders, and he had prepared a brief document for his new master's perusal on the presence of the two strangers he had encountered in the auberge. But by mid-afternoon, his day had taken a turn for the worse. The captain of the guard, accompanied by a flabby young man whose name was Roger Colbert, came to report Anne Chaplet's flight and rescue by, of all people, Vicomte Laurent. Duval 
was livid with rage. You dolt, you blundering imbecile to permit him to make a fool of you? Of all of us? he ranted. There were too many of them, the captain blustered. We'd have been killed. Perhaps a better fate than that which may lie in store for you. Duval snarled, then took a deep breath and spoke with icy calm. Why did the wench run away? The captain exchanged a nervous glance with Colbert before clearing his throat. It may have been because she overheard something we said. But couldn't possibly have understood, sir, Colbert hastened to add whilst rubbing his plump, sweaty hands together. Duval looked straight through him and said, If she didn't, why did she run? He turned back to the captain and asked him what it was they were discussing that could have frightened her. The captain shook his head and was at a loss for words. Oh, on my life, I can't say so, he confessed. For your life, try harder, Duval replied and leant back in his chair, linking his hands and putting his forefingers to his lips. The, uh, celebrations? The captain half-asked Colbert, glancing at him nervously. Oh, yes, yesterday's celebrations, Colbert mumbled. Uh, nothing to frighten the wench there. Duval tapped his lips gently with his fingertips. So you must have said something specific. What was it? The captain rubbed his forehead for several seconds before replying hesitantly. Oh, one of us may have mentioned Wasi. I, uh, I remember the um, town being um, uh, re referred to, Colbert stammered. There's nothing to fear in that, Duval began and stopped abruptly before continuing in measured tones. Unless, of course, she's a Huguenot. The captain licked his lips and Colbert hung his head. Is she? Duval whispered before exploding. Is she? he roared, jumping to his feet. In the most illustrious cardinal's palace, a Huguenot wench? But the captain and Colbert took a step backwards. I've never been aware of a religious inclination, sir, the captain burbled. You, the captain of the most illustrious cardinal's personal guard, are not aware of the religious attitudes of his staff? Then I shall tell you, yes, she is a Huguenot, she must be a Huguenot. For why else would Laurent defy you to defend her? Duval rose from behind his desk, walked to the front of it and prodded the captain's chest with his forefinger. You are dismissed, reduced to the ranks, he shouted, and your first duty as a common soldier will be to provide me by five o'clock this afternoon with a detailed report on the wench naming any family or relatives and where they may be found. Now get out, both of you! After they had fled the room, Duval walked over to the window and stared down at the courtyard below. The girl had to be located and recaptured, if possible, by the time the abbot was installed. Then he remembered the landlord at the auberge and, grabbing his jacket, hurried out of the palace.
Antoine Marc's memory needed a little monetary jogging before it recalled that Anne had been taken by two of Laurent's companions to the Admiral de Coligny's house for safekeeping. Duval was furious, knowing that it would be difficult to prize her out of there, but his rage almost knew no bounds when he returned to his office and learned that not one dissident Huguenot apothecary had been taken in the afternoon raids. As the commander put it with a shrug of his shoulders, they had all simply disappeared. I send you out to arrest twenty-three men and you come back empty-handed? Duval shouted. Why didn't you bring in their wives or their children as hostages? They'd gone too, the luckless commander replied. Duval threw himself into the chair behind his desk and drubbed his fingers on its surface before dismissing the commander with the wave of a hand. Once he was alone, he took stock of the situation. It was not satisfactory, far from it. He would be forced to report that not a single Huguenot apothecary was behind bars, and, knowing the abbot's reputation as a disciplinarian, he directed his thoughts to a matter of much greater importance, saving his own skin. He was still struggling with the problem when at five o'clock the ex-captain of the guard reported that Anne Chaplet's only family, and this from hearsay among the kitchen staff, was a brother, Raoul, and an aunt, name unknown, both of whom lived in Paris. Find them and arrest them, Duval ordered. And the sooner the better. The former captain of the guard saluted him and left hurriedly. Duval buckled on his sword and put on his plumed hat to attend Vespers at Notre Dame, where he would meet the abbot of Amboise. At least, he tried to convince himself he was going with something favourable, however slight, to report. Stephen had passed away the afternoon visiting the Louvre, but his pleasure had been marred by a nagging concern for the doctor. There wasn't anything he could put his finger on, and he had tried to push it out of his mind, but it was still there as he made his way back across Le Grand Pont among the crowd, pushing and jostling its way towards the cathedral. A carriage squeezed Stephen with a lot of others to one side, and inside it he recognised Simon Duval. The Vespers bell began to clang out its call to prayer, and Stephen found himself being swept past the auberge towards Notre Dame. He tried to fight against the human tide, but it was impossible and he was carried along with it to the square in front of the cathedral. Soldiers, armed with pikes, held back the crowd to leave a path along which the carriages of dignitaries attending the service could approach the cathedral steps. Trumpeters and heralds stood on either side of the doors, and as each carriage drew up at the foot of the steps, the occupant would be greeted with a fanfare befitting his rank. Several drew shouts from the crowd. Come on, they cried, to one who waved his plumed hat in recognition. Guise, to another, a name which Stephen already knew. And then Anne, Anne, to a middle-aged woman whose two handmaidens daintily lifted the front of her full, embroidered skirt so that she would not trip as she mounted the steps. 
Stephen spotted Duval standing by the doorway with two of the three clergymen he had seen in the cathedral earlier. The rotund priest with the booming voice and the cadaverous one still clutching his cross as they inclined their heads to the dignitaries entering the cathedral. Then the crowd fell silent as the last carriage rumbled into view. It was a four-wheeled open wagon drawn by four grey horses, hand-led by liveried lackeys. On either side walked six acolytes, swinging thuribles filled with smoking, perfumed incense. An ermine-trimmed silken canopy laced with golden threads sheltered the ornate throne that sat on the lavishly carpeted floor of the wagon. On the throne sat the abbot of Amboise, in his black and white robes, with the cowl thrown back off his head. He was looking from side to side, making discreet signs of the cross to the crowd who stood silently in awe. But Stephen and Duval gawped at the abbot in incredulity, scarcely able to believe the evidence of their eyes. There was no mistaking the abbot's features. Simon Duval was staring at the white-haired old man whose glass he had taken in the auberge, while Stephen's attention was riveted on the doctor. Chapter 5 The Proposition During the Vespers' service, Stephen stood on the cathedral square in a state of shock. What was the doctor playing at? he asked himself. So absorbed was he in his search for an answer that he was unaware of the soldiers pushing back him and the crowd to clear a path to the cardinal's palace where the abbot would be taken when he came out of Notre Dame. The service ended, and the abbot stood on the steps in front of the cathedral to bless the crowd before being helped up to the throne on the wagon. As the liveried lackeys led the horses past Stephen, he tried to catch the doctor's eye, but to no avail, and the procession passed him by. On the other hand, Simon Duval was stunned with admiration by the abbot's audacity to seek out, in disguise, Laurent and Muss, the right-hand men of the two most influential Huguenots in France, King Henri of Navarre and the Admiral de Coligny. When Laurent and Mus saw the abbot again, Duval decided they would laugh on the other side of their faces at their jests against the princess. But, more important to him, hadn't the abbot observed how he had defended Princess Marguerite's honour at the auberge, and had he not refilled the abbot's glass courteously afterwards? The failure of the afternoon, the apothecaries and the wench were not of his making. Others had failed him. And so, with a sigh of relief, he realised he had nothing to fear from his first official encounter with the abbot of Amboise. There were others in the crowd who watched the proceedings with cold, curious eyes, recording the names and rank of those who, as a mark of obeisance to the abbot, attended the service. It was information which would be passed on swiftly to their masters in the English, Dutch and Spanish courts. As the crowd dispersed, Stephen made his way back to the auberge and waited for the doctor until Antoine Marc came over to his table and whispered that it was time to leave. 
Look, but I'm waiting for my friends, Stephen protested. We agreed to meet here. Can't help that, Antoine Mark murmured. I'm about to shut. So you must go. Stephen thought for a moment. This is an auberge, he asked. It is, Antoine Mark muttered. Then I'll take a room for the night, Stephen replied. Antoine Mark hesitated and then smiled. I'll need your papers, he confided. It's the law. Instinctively, Stephen felt his pockets. I don't have any with me, he admitted, adding that where he came from, people weren't obliged to carry them. Oh, things are different here, Antoine Mark's whisper had a note of menace. And uh, no papers, no room. But I, I'm sure my friend will arrive soon, Stephen said, trying to convince himself as much as Antoine Mark. In which case, you'll meet him on the street, Antoine Mark muttered with finality. Stephen shrugged, stood up and went outside to wait. The door shut behind him and he heard the bolts being slid into place. He watched as the window shutters were closed, and then, with a sigh, he leant against the wall. He could go back to the TARDIS, but he hadn't a key, and he certainly didn't fancy spending the night waiting for the doctor on a rubbish dump. The heat of the day had gone. It was still light, and the evening air was balmy. So Stephen decided to walk to the riverside. As he did, the bells from the cathedral clanged out again, which made him curious about the service, as no one was on the streets. Suddenly, he realised he was alone. Where he and the doctor had been jostled and shoved during the day, not a solitary soul was in sight, and the bells still rang out. Then the truth struck. The bell must be a toxin, a warning, and the empty streets told him there must be a curfew. As he had no shelter, he decided to wait under one of the archways near the bridge, which gave him cover and a view of the auberge in case the doctor should arrive. It grew dusk, and Stephen, leaning against the side of the archway, rapidly became bored. He'd given up trying to figure out the doctor's game and why he should choose to impersonate the abbot of Amboise, but he knew he would not see him before morning, and the night stretched endlessly ahead of him. Then the point of a pike pricked the small of his back. What are you doing here? he was asked gruffly. Holding up the arch, Stephen replied nonchalantly as he braced himself. Don't be funny with me, the voice replied as the pike prodded Stephen's back. The soldier's arms are extended, Stephen thought, and he swung one arm in a downwards and sideways stroke to knock the halberd away from his back, a split second before he spun around to grab the shaft and pivot it upwards to hit the soldier on the side of his head. Caught off balance by the blow, the soldier hit the other side of his head against the wall and, releasing the pike, slumped to the ground. Stephen snatched the pike and held it like a staff in front of him as two other soldiers ran at him from the shadows. He fended off their initial attack with seesaw blows of the staff, disarming one of them. The other soldier came back to the attack. Stephen switched his grip on the pike to hold it by one end 
and swung it violently like a pendulum, which sent the soldier's pike flying from his hands. Stephen heard applause behind him, and he turned around to face four more pikemen with a young officer, his sword cradled in his elbow as he clapped his hands. Prettily done, sir, the officer said, taking his sword by the hilt. I admire your mettle, but I think you'd find us too many. Stephen heard the soldier behind him picking up his pike, so he threw down the one he held, which was quickly grabbed by the other soldier scrambling to his knees. Now, tell me what you're doing here, the officer asked. I was sheltering, Stephen replied, and explained about being refused a room at the auberge. And you have no papers? Stephen shook his head, and the officer turned to the soldiers. Take him to the prison at the Cardinal's Palace, he ordered, and smiled at Stephen. You'll find a room there. The doctor had sat fuming for too long. He was sick to death of being stared at and being the butt of some secret joke, as every protest he made was received with hoots of derisory laughter. Then, to his astonishment, a small carriage with a driver and drawn by two Alsatian dogs came into the room. What happened? Charles, the bearded, red-haired man, demanded as the driver stepped out of the carriage and glanced nervously at the doctor. He... he was there, the driver stuttered. How could that be when he's here? David roared, pointing at the doctor. I saw him with my own eyes, the driver, a small, middle-aged man, protested. He went into Notre Dame for vespers. All eyes turned to the doctor as he jumped to his feet. Who went into the cathedral for vespers? He demanded in his most authoritative voice. You did, but apparently you didn't, doctor, Preslan replied lamely. I have insisted throughout this ordeal, the doctor paused for dramatic effect, that I am not the person you presume me to be. Preslan looked embarrassed, and then began to chuckle. Forgive us, Doctor. It would seem that you bear an uncanny resemblance to our mortal enemy, the Abbot of Amboise. I was convinced you were he, admitted Charles. Forgive me. And I also knew I'd seen your face before, David conceded. The Doctor looked around the silent room, and his eyes began to twinkle. And no harm's been done, gentlemen, other than the fact that I'm a little late for my rendezvous. But if someone would kindly escort me up to the streets and fetch me a carriage, I'll take my leave of you. That's impossible, doctor, Preslan said. Why so, Preslan? The doctor was indignant once again. There is a curfew until dawn. Preslan replied, and no one may go abroad. Not even your abbot of Amboise's apparent double? The doctor snapped. Preslan shook his head and explained that the Catholic militia roamed the streets by night, and he would not want to place the doctor's safety in jeopardy. You may continue your journey tomorrow morning, he added, and then smiled. My colleagues and I will spend the night discussing our work with you, if you wish. Hmm, the doctor replied, and, 
deciding that Stephen could take care of himself, agreed. Presline called for food and wine, and the apothecary sat down around the table with the doctor. But the doctor failed to notice the bearded, red-headed man named Charles draw the driver to one side and whisper in his ear. The driver nodded, clambered into the dog cart, and drove off into the tunnels. After Vespers, Simon Duval had returned to his quarters in the Cardinal's Palace and changed into his best finery for the banquet at the Louvre in the abbot's honour. Catherine de' Medici, the Queen Mother, and the young King Charles IX were to preside, and everyone of importance in France, both Catholic and Huguenot, would be in attendance, as well as the ambassadors from England, Spain, Holland, Germany, Italy, and the Holy See. Duval knew that with all the court intrigues being played out and alliances being sought, there would be no opportunity for him to speak to the abbot. That must wait until the morning. This evening, it would be enough for him to be presented and recognised. Then, as he reviewed his appearance in a mirror and drew on his gloves, he anticipated with relish the encounter he would manoeuvre at some point between himself and Laurent. He took a final glance at the mirror, slightly adjusted the tilt of his plumed hat, and left. At least three hundred people were in the receiving room at the Louvre, and with silks, laces, cockades, wigs and pomades, it was difficult to decide who were the more beautifully attired, the women or the men. The twenty-two-year-old king sat enthroned on a dais to one side, with his mother, Catherine, watching as one by one the dignitaries were announced and received by the abbot of Amboise with a slight inclination of the head. To a few he gave a faint smile, and to others a small gesture with his hand. The presentations were made by order of rank, with preference shown naturally to the Catholics. But the Huguenots were not ill-received, and Admiral Gaspard de Coligny was accorded a warm smile by the Queen Mother after he'd been presented. Duval, for his part, overdid his bow with an extravagant sweep of his hat, which caused the abbot to smile thinly at him, a gesture Duval completely misinterpreted. Both Laurent and Mus bowed curtly and formally before being swallowed up by the crowd again. I have the feeling I've seen him before, Mus remarked, quite recently too. When clerics sit on thrones, they all look alike to me, Laurent answered dismissively, as Duval pushed his way through the crowd to his side. Well, Vicon Laurent, what is your impression of our good Lord Abbot? His voice had an edge to it. Laurent shrugged. What would you expect it to be, Simon? He replied. He looks much like any other of that ilk. You surprise me, Duval said. But I'm sure that on better acquaintance you'll think differently. He turned to Mus. And your impression, Herr Mus? That I'd seen him before, Mus replied. Mine as well, Duval smirked. And no doubt all three of us will see him again. And again. A liveried lackey came to Laurent's side and spoke quietly to him. Laurent nodded and turned back to Mus and Duval. 
You must forgive me if I take leave of you, gentlemen, he said, smiling. But apparently some friends of mine, their apothecaries, need me. He bowed to a shaken Duval and winked at Mus before making his way out of the room. For a moment, Duval stared into Mus's eyes, which sparkled with amusement. Walk softly, Herr Mus, he warned, and moved away. This was not the evening it should have been, Laurent reflected, as the Alsatians raced unerringly through the dark underground ditches and catacombs until they ran into the well-lit cave and stopped. Laurent stepped out of the cart and grinned. You must forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, for my appearance, but I was at the royal reception. For this gentleman, sire... Charles asked, pointing at the doctor amid general laughter. For a moment, Laurent looked bemused and then turned at the doctor. But we met, sir, did we not, this afternoon at the Roman Bridge Auberge, which you quit to find an apothecary? That is so, Vicomte Laurent, the doctor replied as he stood up, indicating Preslin with his hand. And as you see, I found the gentleman. Laurent's face became serious. Where's Stephen Taylor, your companion? he asked. The doctor raised his arms and said, I have no idea. Laurent turned to Charles. Put out the word to find him at once, he ordered, and bring him to safety. Charles saluted, jumped into the dog cart beside the driver and drove off. Laurent smiled at the doctor. An efficient means of transportation, don't you think? There's far less traffic down here than on the streets. Are there many of these tunnels? the doctor asked. 287 kilometers of them, to be precise. Spread out like a giant spider's web under the city, Laurent clicked his fingers. You can cross Paris like that, and they are exclusively ours. You mean they, they belong to the Huguenots? the doctor asked. They are of Roman origin, a system of pagan burial grounds which naturally are of no interest to good Catholic souls, so day and night we use them. Fascinating, the doctor observed as the apothecaries muttered among themselves. <laughs> Quite remarkable. But my lord, doesn't he remind you of someone? David exploded impatiently. Absolutely, Laurent grinned. The man in whose honour I was supposed to have dined tonight, they, they could be identical twins. He glanced at Preslam. Which reminds me, I've missed my supper. Do you think I could have something to eat? Turning back to the doctor, he invited him to share a jug of wine. Then, over the table and between mouthfuls, Laurent, with enormous charm and wit, put to the doctor the most preposterous proposition he had ever heard. Chapter 6 Beds for a Night When Simon Duval returned to his quarters after the banquet, he was gratified that he'd been recognised by the abbot, but irritated that Laurent had not only failed to identify the cleric, but had also been implicated in the escape of the apothecaries. With the Duke de Guise and the Marshal Tavannes, 
He had noted the amount of time Admiral de Coligny spent in the Queen Mother's company, and they had agreed it was a matter of utmost urgency to draw the abbot's attention to the Huguenots' influence over Catherine, and, as a result, over her son, the king. As he lay on his back between silken sheets, his head cradled in his hands, Duval mused on the new broom of Catholicism which had swept into power through the absence in Rome of the most illustrious Cardinal Lorraine. The abbot of Amboise would not mince words nor shy away from deeds. Heresy in the form of the Germanic and English denial of the Pope's absolute supremacy, his infallibility in matters of faith, would be ruthlessly put down. The Queen Mother, quickly shown the error of her tolerant ways, would dismiss in disgrace de Coligny and those who served him. She would disperse the student communities studying the precepts of the heretics Luther and Calvin, in a district of Paris she had allowed to be known as Little Geneva near the Sorbonne. But most important of all, the marriage of Henri of Navarre to the Princess Marguerite, annulled by a decree from Rome and France, would once again sleep the sleep of the Catholic just, which Simon Duval now did with vengeance in his heart. Stephen's night began less comfortably. His bed was a sodden palliasse on the floor of a small, dank cell in the basement of the Cardinal's palace, and as he lay shivering in the dark, he thought that, although the climatic conditions may have been ideal for laying down bottles of wine, they did nothing to help the human spirit. He felt he was justifiably angry with the doctor about the secrecy and deception of their presence in Paris, and he was determined to have it out with him when they met up again. To make matters worse, every hour a guard passed by his cell with a torch to make sure he was still there, which made sleeping, already difficult enough, almost impossible. However, at two o'clock in the morning, his circumstances changed when a resentful, recently demoted guard shone the torch brightly in his face and recognised him. "'Oh, it's you,' he said aggressively. "'Remember me?' "'Unfortunately, yes,' Stephen replied, and turned his face to the wall. "'Monsieur Duval will learn of your presence here immediately,' the ex-captain of the guard kicked Stephen in the small of the back before racing off to Duval's quarters. What? Duval roared on hearing the news. That man in a cell? Get him out of there at once! He scrambled out of his bed and threw on a brocaded dressing gown. Install him in one of the most illustrious cardinal's guest rooms. I shall be there to receive him, he shouted, as he waved the astonished guard from his room. Stephen recognised Duval, but was taken aback by his effusive reception. "'My dear sir, that such an error could occur is incomprehensible,' Duval protested, "'and I trust that when you see my lord the abbot in the morning, you will remind him that I reacted with alacrity to a regrettable situation.' "'Of course I shall,' Stephen replied, looking around the magnificent room which had been given to him. "'Very first thing.' Duval bowed and backed his way out, leaving Stephen to strip off and crawl between the silken sheets. Just before he fell luxuriously asleep, he chuckled and thought, what a sly old fox the doctor was.
It was not a sentiment the doctor would have shared. Laurent had manoeuvred him into a difficult, dangerous corner, and cunning would not be enough to extricate himself. But somehow he had to. He looked at the earnest faces of the men who surrounded him, among them Preslin, David, and Laurent, then slowly shook his head. What you ask of me, gentlemen, is impossible, he stated, and your destinies lie in your own hands, not in those of a stranger, which I am. The history of France is not mine, but yours to write. Besides, I am a fatalist, and my ethic is that what must happen will happen, regardless of all that I may try to do. But inwardly, the doctor felt ashamed. These were courageous men who deserved better from him. He wanted to change his mind and say, Yes, I'll play along with you. But he couldn't. It was out of the question. There was an awkward silence which Laurent finally broke. Stephen should be here soon, he said. And when it's daylight, you can continue your journey. Then the dog cart came dashing in from the tunnel, and Charles jumped out. The Catholics have got him, he cried, and explained how Stephen had been taken by a night patrol. Laurent rubbed his chin thoughtfully and then turned to the doctor. Remain here, doctor, he said. We'll arrange his rescue. Where is Stephen being held? the doctor asked. In a cell at the Cardinal's palace, Charles replied. David grunted. That won't make it any easier, he confided to no one in particular. Unless, of course, I order his release, the doctor announced, emphasizing the first-person singular. There was silence as all eyes turned towards him. But that would be mean-spirited in the extreme, gentlemen, to play the role you propose only because it suits my purpose. So confronted as I am with force majeure, I shall play it for the common good. But let me remind you once again, Vicon Laurent, that I am a fatalist. My name is Gaston, Laurent replied, and kissed the doctor on both cheeks. Disengaging himself as best he could, the doctor said that he would need to know everything about the abbot, whom he saw, where he went, what appointments were arranged for him and all of it to the last detail. Our web of spies is like the tunnels, Dr. Laurent said. It reaches out everywhere. The doctor cleared his throat. And, uh, of course, I'll be driven around in that, he said, pointing to the dog cart. Laurent nodded and smiled as he realized that the doctor was about to enjoy himself thoroughly. Stephen woke up with hot sunlight cascading through the open casement windows. A servant was in the room, who said that he'd taken the liberty of having Stephen's unusual attire brushed, had drawn him a cooling bath, and asked if he required some refreshment before his appointment with Simon Duval and the abbot of Amboise. Stephen thanked him and suggested that a jug of milk with some biscuits would make a pleasant breakfast. An hour later... Duval knocked respectfully on the door and waited for Stephen to invite him in. I trust you slept well? Duval inquired. 
Stephen smiled. The second part of the night was better than the first, he replied. Duval looked uncomfortable and admitted that the incident was most unfortunate, then suggested that they should visit the abbot in his office immediately. With pleasure, Stephen said, and tried to keep a serious expression on his face as they left the room. The cardinal's palace was the epitome of luxury, with high, vaulted corridors and priceless tapestries and paintings hanging on the walls. The floors were tiled in marble, and along the centre was an exquisite red-pile carpet. Here and there were satin-covered chairs, and the white double doors which opened to the rooms beyond had superbly painted and delicately decorated panels. Stephen thought that it was a far cry from the streets he and the doctor had walked along the previous day. Then they came to a double door with two liveried halberdiers standing outside. My Lord Abbot, Duval said to neither in particular, and the doors were promptly opened. Duval waved Stephen to lead the way in, and the doors closed silently behind them. They stood in a small carpeted reception room furnished with chairs similar to the ones outside and an ornate desk. The man seated behind it jumped to his feet as soon as he saw them. He had a harassed air to him, but he was clearly relieved to see Duval. Ah, my Lord Abbot awaits, sir, he said, scurrying over to a second double door to open one side of it. This time Duval went in first, the door closing discreetly behind them. The abbot of Amboise sat on a high-backed gilt chair behind a huge, intricately carved, marble-topped desk. His cowl was thrown back off his head, and his hands joined as if in prayer, with the tips of his forefingers resting against his pursed lips. But the eyes above them were cold and hard. Stephen decided that he had never seen the doctor look so angry. "'Who is this fellow?' the abbot asked in glacial tones as he swung his joined hands away from his lips to point them at Stephen. Both Stephen and Duval were completely taken aback, and after a moment, a confused Duval looked from the abbot to Stephen and back to the abbot again, while Stephen stood and stared. What would the wretch with me? the abbot demanded while Duval stammered and stuttered. Speak up, for mercy's sake! I, I thought, thought you knew him, my lord, Duval finally managed to say. I've never seen him before in my life, the abbot snapped. Put him back where he was found. Yes, my lord, at once, my lord, Duval replied, and grabbing Stephen by the arm, ushered him out of the room. Subtle old devil, Stephen thought as he let Duval lead him away, realising that the doctor had meant for him to be taken back to the auberge. Clap this creature in the cells, Duval ordered the guards as soon as they reached the corridor. That's not what he meant, Stephen protested as the halberdiers grabbed him by the arms. He wanted me taken back to the auberge. For a fraction of a second, Duval hesitated, but then he remembered the abbot had said that he had never seen Stephen before. The cells! Duval insisted, and hurried back to the abbot's office, where his second reception was even frostier than the first. I ordered the arrest of some heretic apothecaries. Where are they? the abbot demanded as the door closed behind Duval. 
In hiding, my lord, the luckless Duval replied. They heard of the warrant. How? Duval shook his head. I don't know, my lord, other than the fact that the Huguenot Vicomte Laurent was involved. And who might he be? He was presented to you at the banquet last night. As were many others, the abbot snapped. Describe him. Duval looked around the room. They were alone, the abbot and he. So he leant forward across the desk and lowered his voice. The tall, blond-haired young man I challenged at the Roman Bridge Auberge, he murmured discreetly, and then asked the abbot if he remembered the incident. The abbot's eyes became those of a cobra as he looked through hooded eyes at Duval. Ah, that young man, he muttered, and abruptly ended the interview by ordering Duval to bend every effort to find the apothecaries. Once outside and walking slowly along the corridor towards his own office, Duval was curious about the abbot's refusal to acknowledge Stephen, but was satisfied that he'd done the right thing to throw him back in a cell. It was not until later in the day he learned the abbot had personally signed a document ordering Stephen's immediate release. Chapter 7 Admiral de Coligny As soon as he was released, Stephen made his way to the auberge to wait for the doctor. The landlord, Antoine Marc, although not pleased to see him, was curious to know how Stephen had spent the night. Asleep was the only reply he received, and Stephen toyed with his goblet of red wine whilst watching the door. But the first familiar face he saw was Nicholas Muss, who came over and greeted him. No sign of your friend? Muss asked. And while Antoine Marc tried to eavesdrop, Stephen told him everything that had happened since they last met. The so-called abbot was the doctor, he concluded, or, if not, the spitting image of him, and in that case, why would I have been released? Did you see him sign the document? Muss asked. No, a, a guard came into the cell and told me I was free to go, Stephen replied. So, you're waiting here for him, Muss said, to have something similar happen again tonight if he doesn't show up? Look, I honestly don't know. I'm completely at a loss because I haven't the faintest idea of what's going on, Stephen admitted. Then, come with me to Admiral de Coligny's house, Muss replied. At least there you'll have a roof over your head. But the doctor, Stephen protested, as Muss laid a hand on his shoulder. In one guise or another, I'm sure he'll turn up eventually, Muss remarked enigmatically, and paid for Stephen's glass of wine as they left, leaving Antoine Marc some more information for Simon Duval. There were no difficulties, the doctor told Laurent back in the cave. As the abbot walked out of one door, I walked in by another, put his seal on Stephen's release and gave it to a nervous, fat young man named Roger Colbert. Laurent laughed. <laughs> You've made a good start, doctor. But uh, where is Stephen? the doctor asked. Safely tucked away at Admiral de Coligny's house, Laurent replied, and it's better that he knows nothing of your activities. Why? the doctor was indignant. 
because the fewer who know, the better. These people know, the doctor gestured to the apothecaries and their families. And they will remain here until you're gone. Then bring in Stephen as well. No, doctor, we can't. Nicholas and I have discussed it. Laurent shrugged his regrets. Stephen thinks you are the abbot, and Duval believes the abbot has been playing you. He crossed his arms in front of him with his forefingers pointing in opposite directions. And that's a useful confusion to maintain. Why? the doctor repeated irritably. Duval will soon learn where Stephen is and will have him watched, Laurent replied. But if Stephen were to disappear completely, Duval's suspicions would be aroused. And uh, how long must uh, this charade continue? the doctor snapped. Until the abbot and Duval are toppled from power. Laurent's tone was matter-of-fact. And when will that be? the doctor asked dryly. Well, it depends on you, doctor, Laurent smiled, so shall we say a week at the outside? The doctor remembered the date. It was the 20th of August, and in less than four days, a massacre would begin, one he knew he could not stop. He had extricated Stephen from one prison, only to have him put neatly into another, ensuring that he, the doctor, would do as he was told. Wryly, he conceded, that Laurent and Muss were nobody's fools. At first, Duval was mystified when Roger told him about Stephen's release. It seemed illogical that the abbot would change his mind because he must have foreseen that the Huguenots would react as they had. And then he saw the masterstroke. Both the wretched girl and the abbot's faithful agent were now in the same house, de Coligny's. It was nothing short of genius. He would have liked to know how the abbot had learned about the scullery maid, but it didn't matter. He was proud to be in the service of the most subtle and devious Catholic politician in France, so he allowed himself the luxury of a few idle thoughts on the eventual fate of Gaston Vicomte de Laurent, who he knew was no match for the abbot of Amboise. His reverie was broken by the summons to the abbot's office. We are to attend upon Her Majesty and the King, the abbot announced after Duval had paid his respects. The abbot insisted they took the cardinal's carriage to the Louvre. Stephen was fretting about the doctor, so he went to Laurent's office in the admiral's house. Nicholas informs me that you are comfortably installed, Laurent said, waving Stephen towards a chair. I'd rather stand, Stephen replied, and expressed his confusion and concern for the doctor. Oh, stop worrying, Stephen, I can assure you. The abbot is not your friend, Laurent replied. Then where is the doctor, Stephen insisted. With the apothecary he went to see, Laurent said. For twenty-four hours, Stephen replied in disbelief. Laurent laughed. <laughs> I know apothecaries, and once you get them together, there's no stopping them, he said. One of them raises a point, and another one says we need Joseph's opinion on that, and off someone goes to find him. They can go on for days. Stephen knew that the doctor's concept of time was different to anyone else's, but the fact that he hadn't reappeared, or had he, still troubled him. 
And an apothecary's wife is a special kind of lady, Laurent continued. They understand these gatherings and know when to offer them some refreshment or even a bed, if need be. Hmm, Stephen said half dubiously. There was a tap on the door. Come in, Laurent said, and Anne came into the room with a tray, a jug of wine and a goblet. Uh, we need another, Anne. She smiled at Stephen, made a small curtsy, set the tray on the desk and left. You still take what she said seriously, Stephen asked. They've even been here to ask us to let them take her back, Laurent replied. That much fuss over a kitchen maid? <laughs> yes, we take her seriously. Then what do you suspect? An assassination attempt on the life of my master, King Henri of Navarre, Laurent replied, engineered by the abbot of Amboise. Oh, Stephen said reflectively. Now do you understand? Laurent asked, as Anne came back into the room with the second goblet. I think perhaps I'm beginning to, Stephen replied, as Laurent poured some wine. The abbot of Amboise and Simon Duval entered the vast council chamber of the Louvre with its friezes, paintings, tapestries and brocaded curtains. At the far end of the room was a dais with two steps and covered by a superbly patterned carpet on which there were two thrones, and above them a silken canopy in scarlet and gold over. Her Majesty, Catherine the Queen Mother, sat on one throne, and His Majesty, King Charles IX, on the other. On the marble floor around the foot of the dais stood the councillors, and Duval's eyes quickly noted that both camps, Catholic, and Huguenot were represented. The Catholics were led by the king's younger brother, Duke Henri of Anjou, with Francois, Duke of Guise, the Duke of Nevers, and Marshal Tavannes in attendance. For the Huguenots were King Henri of Navarre, the Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, Nicolas Mus, and Vicomte Gaston Laurent. My Lord Abbot, both the Queen Mother and the King murmured as he bowed over their outstretched hands. Your Majesties, he replied, and smiled thinly at both camps. Let us to business, the King said, and promptly had a fit of coughing which lasted for at least a minute, after which he wiped the flecks of blood from the corners of his mouth with a lace handkerchief. <coughs> wine! Give us wine! he croaked. A golden chalice was handed to him by a servant, and he sipped from it. Then he leant back on his throne and closed his eyes. Rest, my son, rest, the Queen Mother said, and patted his hand. We shall deal with the affairs of state. She paused and looked down at the faces around her. We shall hear first from our loyal Admiral of France. Gaspard de Coligny was a well-built man in his early fifties, a devoted servant of the crown and a fervent believer in a united France, regardless of religious inclinations. Although a Huguenot and lacking in a sense of humour, his genuine humility had kept him close to the royal family since. Charles became king at the age of ten, and his influence over the Queen Mother was unequalled. Your Majesty, my liege, he began, glancing from Catherine to the open-mouthed young man who was still gasping for air. 
May I come back upon our allegiance to the Dutch, the Sea Beggars, as they are called? You always do, Admiral, Marshal Tavan interjected. Their war with the Spanish Low Countries is just one, and merits our aid, de Colini continued, ignoring the remark. My dear Admiral, didn't our brother-in-law, King Henry of Navarre, who stands beside you, raise an army to aid the sea beggars? The Duke of Anjou asked sarcastically. And wasn't it thrashed by the Spanish last month at Mons? It was a mercenary force, sire, privately raised because of your reluctance to see justice done. Navarre was unperturbed. Their hearts were not in the fight. God's right and God's might will always be with the one true faith, the abbot intervened. We talk of unjust territorial claims by the Spanish against the Dutch, de Coligny shook his head sadly. All you can see is Protestant against Catholic, a continuing religious war. I hate Spaniards as much as I love tennis, <clears throat> the king spluttered from the throne. Then, my liege, lend our force of arms to the Dutch, to the sea beggars, de Coligny cried. Your Majesty, the Treasury could not support a French intervention, Tavan protested to the Queen Mother. I need some fresh air, the King said. My lords, your opinions will be taken carefully into consideration. With that, Catherine, the Queen Mother, ended the audience. Henri, Duke of Anjou, speculated on how much longer his elder brother had to live and how best he could diminish the Huguenot influence over his mother. The abbot of Amboise now knew the lie of the land, and the three devoted secretaries, Duval, Laurent, and Mus, had not missed a word. With an hour, the dogcart with Laurent was racing through the tunnels towards the cave and an impatient, anxious doctor. Chapter 8 The Escape Despite Laurent's assurances, Stephen was worried about the doctor. If he were not pretending to be the abbot, then where was he? He'd been gone for a day, and although Stephen thought it was possible for the doctor to be still with Preslin, he didn't think it probable. He decided that there was only one solution to go to Preslin's home and find out for himself. But when he tried to leave the Admiral's house, he was politely restrained and told that he required the signed permission of either Laurent or Mus. Angrily, he demanded to see one or the other, but was told that Mus was with the Admiral and could not be disturbed, and Laurent had gone to the King of Navarre's residence. As he stormed back to his room, he met Anne in a corridor beside the pantry. He drew her to one side and discreetly asked if she knew a way out of the house without being observed. I haven't been here long enough to know anything like that, sir, she replied. Isn't there some way through the kitchens? Stephen persisted. Anne thought for a moment before replying. Well, not really, sir, she said, unless you talk about putting out the rubbish. How do you do that? Stephen asked. By the tunnel from the scullery. It leads to the other side of the wall, but it's ever so scary, she replied. Stephen smiled. Will you show it to me, he asked. 
Being mid-afternoon, the kitchens were deserted while everyone took a siesta, so Stephen and Anne reached the scullery without being seen. She pointed to a small door in the wall. That's it, through there, she said. Thank you, Anne. And not a word to anyone. Stephen smiled and put his forefinger to his lips. Make sure you leave the outside door open, because you can't get back in if you don't, Anne advised as she lit a taper and handed it to Stephen. Bye-bye, he said, and touched her cheek with his hand. Where are you going? she asked suddenly. Montparnasse to find a friend, Stephen replied. Anne let out a little squeal. Oh, my aunt and my brother live near there. Take me with you, sir. How can I, Anne, when you're here for safekeeping? Stephen asked. Anne looked at Stephen for a moment before replying. Oh, tell them where you've gone, she said. Stephen was astounded. There's a name for people who do that, young lady. Anne smiled. Yes, I know, she admitted. It'll be dangerous, Stephen reminded her. I'd be safe with you, she replied beguilingly. Stephen sighed. This is against my better judgment, but come along if you must, he said, and opened the door to the tunnel, which was about thirty metres long. They say there are a lot of these, but much bigger under Paris, Anne announced as they bent down to make their way along it. Halfway along, a tunnel led off to the right. Where does that one go? Stephen asked as they passed it. I don't know, and I don't want to. Anne's reply was a frightened whisper which made Stephen chuckle. They came to the door at the far end which opened inwards. He extinguished the taper before peering outside. It was a small three-sided enclosure, like a stable with a wicker gate closing off the fourth side. He stepped out, and Anne followed him, shutting the door behind them. Stephen opened the wicker gate and looked up and down the street at the back of the house. There were no sentinels in sight, and they hurried away in search of a carriage to take them to Montparnasse. As the doctor changed into his abbot's habit, Laurent explained the plan to him. You'll be taken to the entrance in Notre Dame, he began. There's one in the cathedral? The doctor was surprised. We have ways in almost everywhere. The Catholics sealed them and then forgot about them. We remembered them and opened them. You entered the Cardinal's palace through the scullery yesterday, Laurent reminded him. True, but why am I not going back there? The doctor asked as he finished dressing. And Laurent produced a transcript of the royal audience which he gave to the doctor to read. That's where we start undermining them, he said, tapping the document with his forefinger, with Tavan. And you have two hours, Doctor, as the abbot should be in his quarters, resting and reading his office. Uh, should be, not will be, the doctor remarked. Almost certainly will be, Laurent replied with a smile. A few minutes later, the doctor was on his helter-skelter ride through the dark tunnels until the driver drew in the reins and the dogs stopped. <coughs> Up the steps over there, sir the driver said, handing him a lit taper. There's a Judas hole in the door, and when you come back I'll be waiting here. The doctor went up the steps to the door and blew out the taper, which he laid down on the top step. He peered through the Judas hole 
and saw that he was looking into a small crypt. No one was in sight, so he cautiously opened the door, went into the crypt, and closed it behind him. Light filtered in, and he saw that on either side of the crypt was a stone tomb, with the effigy of a reclining knight in armour on one, and a woman in a flowing robe on the other. At the end of the crypt was a wooden door with an iron grill. The doctor pushed down the latch and pulled the door open. In front of him was a short flight of steps leading up to one aisle of the cathedral. The doctor put his hands in prayer in front of his face to conceal it and went up the steps into the main body of the cathedral. He made his way swiftly to the west entrance and drew the cowl over his head as he stepped out into the sunshine. With his head bowed, he crossed the square and entered the cardinal's palace, threw the cowl back off his head and then, ignoring the salutes of the palace guards, made his way to Duval's office on the second floor. Duval was seated at his desk, re-reading reports of the vain attempts to find the Huguenot apothecaries, when the abbot's presence was announced. He stood up quickly and respectfully as the doctor swept into the room. I wish a word with Marshal Tavan, the doctor announced, so escort me to his residence. I'll summon the carriage, my lord, Duval replied. No, we'll walk, my son, the doctor replied. A prelate should be as one with his flock. Yes, my lord, Duval agreed, although the last thing he wanted to do was walk through the crowded streets on a sweltering afternoon. But the people stood aside to permit them free passage, and the doctor acknowledged their politeness with little gestures of one hand. Watchfulness is the mark of a good shepherd, he observed as they made their way towards Tavan's home, lest some predator fall upon his charges and devour them. I agree, my lord, we must always be on the alert for an enemy in our midst, Duval replied with conviction. Yeah, quite so, quite so, the doctor murmured as they entered the marshal's house. They were received in Tavan's study. If unprepared for it, my lord, I am honoured by your visit, said Tavan, a portly man with a flowing moustache who was in his mid-sixties. I do not procrastinate, Marshal, the doctor was curt. Catholic must not fight Catholic. So, I agree with your hypothesis. France cannot afford a war with Spain. That's the truth, my lord, and the Queen Mother knows it. Tavan raised his arms in emphasis. Also, she fears Spain's force of arms. Yes, both Catherine and her son favoured de Coligny the doctor reminded him. Tavan stroked his moustache and smiled. The king, perhaps, but the queen mother has been wooed away. That was not evident today, Marshal, the doctor snapped. It suits our purpose for the admiral to believe he still has her high esteem, Tavan replied, but let me assure you, my lord, that the court will soon be rid of the Huguenot's influence. The doctor raised a protesting hand. I serve only the faith, Marshal, and I repeat, Catholic must not fight Catholic, he said. The politics of France are no concern of mine. Looking at his face, 
Duval, who relished the thought of Laurent's and Moss's humiliation, was convinced that the abbot could out-politic the devil if need be. As they walked back towards the cardinal's palace, the doctor announced his intention of going to the cathedral to meditate and instructed Duval to return to his office. I shall transcribe your conversation with Marshal Tavan at once, my lord, Duval said. The doctor looked suitably horrified. No, no, my son, he replied. We spoke informally, as man to man. What was said will remain a secret between the three of us. Of course, my lord, you may rely on my discretion. Duval bowed his head in respect and left. The doctor entered the cathedral and, as he walked along the aisle, was about to push the cowl off his head when he saw the abbot of Amboise walking in the opposite direction along the nave. Hastily, the doctor dropped to his knees and bowed his head as if in prayer, whilst thinking that with should-be's and will-be's, the sooner he and Stephen were quit of Paris, the better. Chapter 9 A Change of Clothes Stephen and Anne found Preslan's shop without much difficulty and walked along the narrow lane to the back as the doctor had done on the previous day. Stephen knocked several times at the door, but there was no reply. Three of them's in there hiding somewhere, the rosy-cheeked stout woman announced from the next door window. Unless they crept out in the middle of the night, she added that not much missed her eyes, either on the street or behind it. Hiding? Stephen exclaimed. The soldiers came by early yesterday evening looking for them, I suppose, but they went away empty-handed, she replied. Was one of the three men elderly, wearing a cloak and carrying a silver-knobbed cane? Stephen asked. Oh, he was the one who came asking for Monsieur Preslin in the first place. Oh, why don't you go in and look, she suggested. It's never locked. Tentatively, Stephen tried the door, and it swung open. Thank you, madame, he said, and, taking Anne by the arm, went inside. They searched the house thoroughly, but found nothing to give Stephen a clue that the doctor had been there. They must have made good their escape before the soldiers arrived, Stephen said, as they stood in the bedroom, which was a shambles with Presland's clothes strewn everywhere. And the neighbour didn't see them leave, sir. Anne sounded dubious. A busybody like her? Then, can you explain it? Stephen replied irritably. No, sir, I can't, Anne said. But I must find him. Stephen was emphatic. Best not in those clothes, sir, Anne suggested. They're a bit funny and you'd soon be recognised if anyone were to see you. Stephen smiled wryly. I think you're right, Anne, but what else have I to wear? His things, sir, Anne pointed to Preslan's clothes. By the look of them, we're not the same build, Stephen replied. Oh, there's plenty of people in Paris who wear ill-fitting clothes, sir. Anne scratched her head and smiled. So many you don't even notice them. I'll wait for you downstairs. Stephen looked with dismay at the hose, the doublets, the buckled shoes and the plumed hats lying on the floor on the bed. He knew Anne was right, but everything apart from the hat was too small. He sighed and changed, 
Then he bound his clothes up in a bundle which he slung over his shoulder and went downstairs. As soon as Anne saw him, she had a fit of the giggles. <laughs> Nobody would ever know it was you, sir, she said, her shoulders jiggling. That's a relief. Stephen's voice had an edge to it. But stop calling me sir all the time. My name's Stephen. Yes, sir, er, Stephen, sir, Anne replied. He smiled. Where does your aunt live? In the Rue des Fosses Saint-Jacques. It's not far from here, Anne said. St. James's Ditches, Stephen translated. I'll take you there. Very handsome you look, very handsome indeed, sir, the neighbour said as Stephen and Anne left the house. Stephen gave her a sickly smile. It did occur to him to say that he would eventually return Presland's clothes, but he decided against it. As they made their way through the streets, Stephen discovered two things. The first was that Anne was right. No one paid any attention to him. And the second was that his borrowed shoes pinched. But the third discovery, when they reached the aunt's modest home, was much more serious. A neighbour came in tears to say that Anne's brother and her aunt had been abducted on the previous evening by Catholic soldiers. At approximately the same time, Roger Colbert presented himself at the Admiral's house and asked to see Nicholas Muss. Nervously intertwining his plump fingers, the young man explained that Duval would be willing to exchange the relatives for the wench. Your master places considerable importance on retrieving this, er, uh, wench, as you call her, Muss said calmly from behind his desk. And for the life of me, I cannot think why. She has a contract of employment which she has broken, Colbert replied, untwining his fingers to tap one set on the back of the other hand. A, a situation, sir, which I'm sure you would not tolerate in this household. Indeed not. Must smiled. It would mean instant dismissal. That is not our way, Colbert returned the smile. After an appropriate reprimand, the offender is given a second chance. In the true Christian spirit, Must retaliated. Perhaps the girl should be allowed to decide for herself, Colbert suggested. Her return against her relative's release. That's hardly the same spirit, is it? Must shook his head and then pointed at Colbert. Go back and tell Simon Duval to free her family and come here himself with a guarantee on his honour that they will not be abducted again. Must leant forward, put his elbow on the desk and raised his forefinger towards the ceiling. At that point, I will have Anne Chaplet summoned here. He reversed the direction of his finger to make her choice. Colbert inclined his head slightly and left the room. After a few minutes, Muss rang the small bell on his desk and asked his secretary to fetch Anne. When he learned she was missing, he sent for Stephen, only to be told that he too had disappeared. In exasperation, he hit the desk with his fist. Find them! Find them before the Catholics get wind of this, he ordered. 
The doctor had returned to the cave, and whilst he changed into his own clothes, Laurent listened to his account of the meeting with Tavan. So now Catherine's with them, and the Admiral's on his way out, Laurent summarized when the doctor had finished. Eh, that's how it appears, the doctor confirmed. The Queen Mother's equivocation I can understand, Laurent replied. She's always tried to maintain the balance between Catholic and Huguenot, but getting rid of de Coligny is more difficult to understand because he's the king's man. You're forgetting that Charles is tied to his mother's apron strings, the doctor pointed out. Not since she forced him to marry Elizabeth of Austria, Laurent answered. Since then... He's tried to be his own master. Yes, but he's sick, the doctor emphasized. Yes, I know. And his little brother, the Duke of Anjou, the heir to the throne, is no friend of ours, Laurent added, and then asked the question the doctor dreaded. But how do they intend to get rid of de Coligny? I don't know, the doctor lied and changed the subject. Where's Stephen? Safe and sound at the Admiral's house, Laurent replied confidently, and returned to his own question. Obviously the Queen Mother must know. Anjou, Tavannes, and Guise would not dare move without her consent. He paused and then smiled at the doctor. We'll arrange an audience as soon as possible with her for you, my Lord Abbot, to find out. The doctor looked at him with lugubrious eyes and sighed in resignation. Duval was furious when Colbert told him about Mussy's reaction to the exchange. No, I will not free them, he shouted and hammered on his desk. Not until the girl is here. Go back and tell him that. There was a knock on the door. What is it? He snapped as a sentry came into the office with a sealed note which he handed to Duval. Duval broke it open with a small knife and read the message. Then he roared with laughter and crumpled the parchment in his hand. He's got her out of there! He's done it! Quickly, Roger, go and find them! Who, sir? Colbert was completely confused. The young man! The abbot's agent and the wench, Duval replied excitedly. Reach them before the Huguenots do. He took Colbert by the sleeve. There's a promotion in it if you succeed. Colbert scuttled from the room. Stephen stood on the street and tried to think. He was stuck with Anne as she had nowhere to go, but neither had he. The auberge was out of the question as both sides would look for him there, and he had no idea where the doctor was. Finally, he realized that, without papers, there was only one safe refuge for him, the rubbish dump where the TARDIS stood. But he was obliged to take Anne along. Dressed as he was, a carriage was out of the question, so they made their way back across the city as quickly as Stephen's blistering feet would allow. On the way, they saw patrols of Catholic soldiers and groups of men who looked suspiciously like Huguenots on a similar mission, to find them. Stephen squeezed Anne's shoulder in appreciation as they walked unrecognized through the streets. He did not relish the idea of waiting for the doctor among the putrescence, as the latter had described it, 
but he seemed to have no choice. Some distance from the dump, Stephen saw the crowd, and with a sinking heart and in spite of his feet, increased his pace towards it. He knew what had happened. Someone had opened the door to the rubbish dump and had seen the TARDIS. Stephen forced his way to the front of the crowd. The door had been knocked down as well as most of the front wall, and the rubbish cleared away. The TARDIS was surrounded by halberdiers, and over it were three stout tree trunks strapped together to form a triangular support for the pulleys and ropes, which made up the primitive crane that was secured to the TARDIS, and hoisting it, centimetre by centimetre, into the air, so that the horse-drawn cart waiting to one side could be backed in under it and take it away. End of Disc 2 Disc 3 Chapter 10 The Hotel Lutece Laurent was angry and perplexed when Mus told him that both Anne and Stephen had disappeared. He wanted to know how and why. The how I can answer, Mus replied. She must have shown him the rubbish tunnel which was unguarded. So, he's gone looking for his friend, the doctor, but why did he take the girl with him? Laurent demanded. Surely he knew the risks they'd be running. I'd have thought so. Mus poured some water from a pitcher on his desk into a glass and sipped it. Both sides are out looking. Let's hope we find them first. But what do we tell the doctor? Laurent stood up and leant on the desk with his fists to face Mus. Nothing. Not a word until the royal audience is over. Until we know what's proposed as to Collini's fate. When will Catherine receive our abbot? Mus asked. Laurent turned away from the desk and spread out his arms as he walked over to the window. When I know their abbot's plans for tomorrow, then I'll prepare ours. But count on it for tomorrow. Stephen and Anne mingled with the crowd following the cart with the TARDIS loaded on it. Is that something to do with you? Anne asked. Is that why you took me there? Stephen nodded. But what is it? She continued. A special type of carriage. He kept his voice down. Where are the wheels? Anne's curiosity was aroused. As you can see, it doesn't have any, he replied. So, it has to be pulled around like that? Anne said, sounding derisory. <laughs> Not very fast. More funny, I'd say. It's different, Stephen conceded, and wondered where the TARDIS was being taken to. An hour later, the motley procession entered a large square with a forbidding fortress in the middle of it. Where are we? Stephen asked. Anne looked at him in surprise. <laughs> You are a stranger to Paris, she exclaimed. That's the Bastille prison, and very few go in alive come out in the same condition, I can tell you. Stephen stared in horror as the horse-drawn cart reached two huge wooden doors which opened to receive the TARDIS and then closed behind it as the crowd dispersed. I'm hungry, Stephen, 
Aren't you? Anne asked perkily. Yes, I suppose we should eat something, Stephen mumbled, his mind elsewhere. We've got to think about the curfew, Anne reminded him, bringing up yet another problem. They found a small inn near the square and ordered wine, fruit juice, bread and cheese. Anne drank the juice and munched her food with pleasure, while Stephen barely touched his wine and nibbled distractedly at the wedge she had prepared for him. Finally, she reached out with a hand and touched his arm. Don't look so worried, Stephen, she said gently. Well, there are questions to be answered, he replied. Where my friend, the doctor, is, and when I find him, how we'll reach the carriage, but most immediately, where you and I can spend the night without being arrested. Oh, that's no problem at all, Anne replied. There are some very good hotels in Paris. You need papers to stay in one, Stephen protested. Believe me, I know. Not in these ones you don't, Anne insisted. Though sometimes, if you leave it too late, finding rooms can be difficult. So eat up, we'll have a good night's sleep and see what we can do about the other answers tomorrow. Stephen studied Anne's face for a few moments. Her fresh complexion was surrounded by a shoulder-length tangle of auburn curls. Her nose retrousse and under it a mouth which frequently twitched at the corners as though she was about to burst out laughing or giggling at any moment, although her pale blue eyes were shrewd and knowing. How old did you say you were? Stephen asked. I didn't. But I'm fifteen, she replied. Hmm. That's not too young to give good advice, Stephen said, and took a big bite of his bread and cheese. Stephen paid, and as they left the inn, he asked where was the nearest hotel they could stay at. Anne replied that there was one very close, only two streets away. As they walked towards it, the toxin bell began to chime. Only just in time, Stephen remarked, expecting to find the hotel in front of them as they turned a corner. Instead, he was confronted with an old abandoned cemetery, overgrown with wild flowers and weeds, amongst which a number of sepulchres sprouted. Here, he asked with some surprise. They say they're very cool in the summer, Anne assured him. Lots of students sleep in them and nobody minds. He laughed at her and put his arm around her shoulders. Which would you rather, madame, he asked. The southerly aspect facing west, looking north, or to the east? They found a tomb with a shelf on either side and no bones. Crouching, Stephen used a branch with some leaves on it to sweep off the dust, while Anne collected some wild flowers to decorate their apartment, as she put it. Stephen undid his bundle of clothes and made two pillows of them and placed one on each shelf. Anne had been right. It was pleasantly cool inside the tomb, even though there was no door. Later, as they lay on their shelves in the gathering dusk, Stephen asked exactly where they were. It's called the Lutes Cemetery. Lutes was the old Roman name for Paris, Anne murmured sleepily. The Hotel Lutes, Stephen mused. I shall recommend it to my friends. Chuckling, he fell asleep. 
By morning, word of the TARDIS's discovery had spread throughout Paris, with possibly the only exception being the apothecaries and the doctor in the cave. When the king heard of it, he called for a horse and rode with several courtiers, among them de Coligny and Tavannes, to the Bastille to examine it. From a discreet distance, Stephen and Anne watched them enter the fortress and saw the TARDIS on the ground in the centre of the courtyard before the doors were closed. What do you make of it, de Coligny? the king asked, as, from what was considered a safe distance, they circled the time machine. I have no idea, sire, the admiral admitted. An engine of war, perhaps, my liege, Tavan suggested. But what manner? the young king asked. An explosive device? It does not move unless it can fly like a bird? <laughs> he flapped his arms whilst everyone laughed dutifully. And why should it have been set down where it was? Perhaps, sir, the answers lie inside, de Coligny ventured. We shall have it opened, the king replied, and waved a royal hand at no one in particular. Fetch a locksmith. The best there is to be found. He remounted his horse. But none shall enter therein unless we are present. The doors opened, and they rode back to the palace. <coughs> Laurent and Mussy's interest in the find was minimal. Laurent had gone to the Cardinal's palace to study the abbot's schedule for the day, which was posted, as was the custom, on the main gates. Like the previous day, the only opportunity for the abbot's substitution appeared to be between three and five in the afternoon when he rested and read his office. But the problem was that Catherine retired to her rooms in the Queen's Palace during the afternoon and could not be disturbed. For Muss's part, his disinterest was due to his concern for the admiral's position in the court, and he spent the morning trying to work out without much success which Catholic political manoeuvre would be most likely to bring about his master's downfall. On the other hand, the abbot of Amboise was most interested in the bizarre machine, but he was too preoccupied with the relative strengths of Catholics and Huguenots in other parts of France to go and look at it himself. So he sent Duval, who found the locksmith hard at work, trying to prise open the lock whilst being watched by the halberdiers on guard. What progress do you make? Duval asked. The locksmith straightened up and scratched the back of his neck. Well, with uh, all the betties that I've got, my lord, he said, jingling a ring with wires, hooks, and odd-shaped needles hanging from it. And with all of them, there's not a lock in Paris, no, in all the fronts, that'll keep me out. He pointed at the keyhole in the TARDIS door. But this one's... It's made by the devil himself, for it's like none other I've ever seen. The black arts, Duval murmured, as the locksmith inserted another needle into the keyhole and tried to manoeuvre it. Then he yelped and leapt back. What is it, fellow? It set me arm on fire inside, the locksmith blurted. Show me, Duval said, and examined the man's arm. I see no sign of burning. Inside my arm, like the cramping of the muscles. The locksmith wailed and then pointed at the key stuck in the lock. And how will I get that one out? Touch nothing, 
Duval ordered and turned to the halberdiers. Ah, take this hapless creature and incarcerate him alone, for he's possessed by Satan, the Lord of Darkness. Bemoaning his miserable fate, the locksmith was taken away and thrown into one of the Bastille's dungeons, whilst Duval made his way back to the cardinal's palace as quickly as possible. Laurent paced nervously in front of the doctor. I can think of no better method than to have you wait in the crypt of Notre Dame until a favourable opportunity presents itself to escort you to the Queen Mother, he confessed, as the doctor watched him wearily. And uh, if one doesn't, what then? The doctor had acid in his voice. One will, one must. Laurent was desperate. But we must be ready to take advantage of it. The doctor sighed. The interview with Catherine and after that we shall leave you, he said. How is Stephen, by the way? Fine, very well, Laurent replied almost too quickly. Mystified by your continuing absence, of course, but in good spirits. Hmm, the doctor said non-committedly. Chapter 11 The Royal Audience Stephen weighed up the alternatives which seemed open to him and came to the conclusion that returning to the auberge was the logical thing to do. The doctor had said they would meet there, so that was where Stephen would wait for him. He would have preferred Anne to return to Ducolini's house, but she argued that Duval's men were watching it and she would almost certainly be captured by them before being safely inside its walls. Reluctantly, Stephen agreed with her and they set off towards the island and Notre Dame. Once again, the day was clear, fine and hot, as the mid-morning crowds bustled about their business on the streets. Stephen held Anne's hand as they jostled their way towards the bridge, but were forced to one side by an approaching carriage. Not until it was level with them did Stephen realise that the man inside with Duval was the doctor. Or was he? he wondered, and then, taking the risk of drawing Duval's attention to them both, Stephen shouted out the doctor's name. But the abbot of Amboise ignored him. Where's he going? To the TARDIS? Stephen asked aloud. To where? Anne was puzzled. Uh, the Bastille and the carriage, he corrected himself. We'll go back and see, she suggested. Stephen thought for a moment before replying. No, no, we won't. We'll go to the auberge as planned. But as they reached Le Grand Pont to cross the river, Stephen had an even greater surprise. A carriage came rattling over it and drove off towards the Queen Mother's palace with one passenger inside, the abbot of Amboise. Or was that one the doctor? Stephen broke into a run, dragging Anne along with him. Doctor! he shouted several times, but the street noises were too loud for the doctor to hear, and the carriage drew away. One of those two men is my friend, the doctor. Stephen stopped and gasped in exasperation. Ah, oh, but which one? Anne asked. He shook his head. If I knew that, our troubles would be over. Well, almost over he corrected himself, thinking about the TARDIS locked in the Bastille. Unless, 
Of course, that abbot was the doctor, in which case he should have listened to Anne, but if it weren't the doctor that... He gave up in confusion and took Anne to the auberge where they mingled with the crowd outside and waited to see what would happen next. The two abbots of Amboise arrived at their destinations almost simultaneously, the first at the Bastille and the second at the Queen Mother's Palace, where the doctor was shown into an antechamber prior to being announced. <laughs> My sovereign lady, the doctor murmured as he bowed over Catherine's hand. What would my lord abbot with us? asked the dumpy, plain, middle-aged woman in widow's weeds who ruled all of France over her son's feeble protests. I am concerned, your majesty, about Admiral de Coligny's proposed alliance with the Protestant Dutch against Catholic Spain in the Low Countries, the doctor said. And I repeat, Catholic must not fight Catholic. Nor shall they, my lord abbot. There will be no alliance and no war, Catherine replied. We shall never permit it, and with good reason. Marshal Tavan is right. France cannot afford a war, and moreover, as Henri of Navarre learned to his cost, we are no match for the Spanish force of arms. Uh, but the Admiral has the King's ear, Your Majesty, and argues persuasively, the doctor continued. And I am the Queen Mother, Regent of France, she answered. With due respect, Your Majesty, you were the Regent of France. Since King Charles' marriage, you no longer are, the doctor reposted. Catherine dismissed the remark with a wave of her hand. Our son does as he is told, my Lord Abbot. Then she leant forward on her throne and lowered her voice. And do not be concerned about the Admiral's influence over the King. It will be short-lived. Monsieur Bondo will see to that. The doctor knew he must draw her out to say exactly what was to happen to de Coligny. Bondo, he asked in all innocence. Our life has been spent in an attempt to reconcile Catholic and Huguenot, to see them live together side by side, free to worship as they will, she explained. You may insist the Huguenots are heretics, my lord abbot, but it is a word we've tried to avoid. Until now, when our beloved France is placed in peril by these reckless men. And what has Bondo to do with it? the doctor persisted. The Queen Mother smiled at him. Ask that of my younger son, the Duke of Anjou, or Henri of Guise, or the Marshal Tavan. But not of us, my Lord Abbot, not of us. As he clambered into his carriage to return to the cathedral and the crypt, the doctor was dismayed that he'd failed to prize the word assassinate from Catherine's lips. But he felt he had sufficient clues to put Laurent and Muss on the right track. First, show me the wretch, the abbot of Amboise demanded, averting his eyes from the TARDIS in the middle of the courtyard. He was taken to a dank, dark dungeon, where the unfortunate locksmith was chained to one wall. In the name of our Lord, I command thee, malignant prince of darkness, to be gone, the abbot intoned, whilst the locksmith moaned. 
The abbot turned to Duval. Lucifer entered this miserable soul through his arm, he said, and Duval nodded, his hands joined in silent prayer. The position is deep-rooted and the exorcism will be difficult and not without anguish, the abbot added with fervor as the locksmith moaned again. But the devil's house must be destroyed before we begin, he announced. No place must be left within which evil may hide. Then he returned to the courtyard and, holding firmly onto the cross that hung around his neck, circled the TARDIS, studying it warily. From the inferno of hell, this fiendish engine came, he cried out when he'd finished examining it. So shall it return. He ordered the halberdiers to fetch straw and enough wood to surround and cover the TARDIS completely. Let it be burned at the stake, he shouted in religious ecstasy. The officer in charge of the halberdiers approached and saluted him. My Lord Abbot, he spoke deferentially. His Majesty the King has expressed a desire to see what lies inside. Eternal damnation is within, the abbot snapped back. So do as I say. Prepare this monstrosity for the stake. I shall deal with the king and return to light the cleansing fire that will rid the true faith of this satanic abomination. On that note, the abbot re-entered his carriage and was driven away with Duval towards the Louvre. As they approached Le Grand Pont, the carriage stopped. What's amiss? Duval called up to the driver. Another carriage which comes in the opposite direction, sire, the driver answered. The abbot looked testily at Duval. I am about God's business. Tell the other to yield the way. Yes, my lord, Duval replied and descended from the carriage, just as the driver called down that the other carriage had turned to cross over the river to Notre Dame, and the way to the Louvre was now clear. Who was it? the abbot demanded as Duval clambered back into the carriage. A prelate by his robes, my lord, Duval replied but I didn't manage to see his face. Which was just as well, as the doctor had recognized Duval getting out of the carriage and, watching surreptitiously, was relieved when the abbot's carriage continued on its way. His carriage drove past the auberge where Stephen sat with his back to the square, facing Anne, who saw the carriage on the far side of the square. Isn't that your friend? she asked and pointed. The one on his own in the carriage over there? Stephen spun round and jumped to his feet. Wait for me here, he said. As quickly as he could, he forced his way through the jostling crowd and broke into a run towards Notre Dame. The carriage stood at the foot of the steps and Stephen caught a fleeting glimpse of the doctor entering the cathedral. Doctor! he yelled, but it was too late. He took the steps two at a time and burst into the stillness of the nave. He looked about him along the aisles everywhere he could think of, but there was no sign of him, the doctor or the abbot, whichever one he was. Stephen retraced his steps back to the auberge, but Anne was no longer there. He asked a man who'd been sitting next to them where she was. Ah, she just left after you dashed off, the man replied. Did she say where she was going or when she'd be back? Stephen's voice was urgent. Not a word, 
just upped and went, the man said. Stephen looked desperately up and down the busy streets, but he knew it was hopeless. Also, he half knew Anne believed he'd found the doctor and had gone back to the Cardinal's palace to try and secure the release of her brother and her aunt. Yeah, a pretty little wench she was, the man added with a sly wink, and Stephen turned away. Both Laurent and Muss hung on to every word the doctor recounted about his audience with the Queen Mother, and when he'd finished, they looked at one another. But who is Bondo, and how will he bring about the Admiral's downfall? Muss asked. Laurent shrugged. Nicholas, I have no idea. On neither side does such a name exist, at least not to my knowledge. Then... Do we assume that it's a code name for someone highly placed who could topple de Coligny? Muss replied. Highly placed? We know their proper name, so why the masquerade? Laurent put the fingertips of one hand to his forehead. Unless Bondo is one of two people whose names could never be associated with the Admiral's defeat. The King? Or the Queen Mother? Muss volunteered. Precisely. Laurent turned to the doctor. We need to know. Gentlemen, I have run all the risks that I'm prepared to in this venture, the doctor spoke sternly. Twice now, I have almost come face to face with the real abbot of Amboise. The third time could be an actual confrontation. No, I agreed to see the Queen Mother and then be on my way. And I'm holding you to those terms, so, please, deliver Stephen to me. There was a long pause during which Laurent and Muss exchanged an uncomfortable glance. I'm afraid we can't, because we don't know where he is, Laurent said finally. He escaped from the Admiral's house and took the serving girl with him, Muss added. But they are being actively sought, he hesitated fractionally by Catholic and Huguenot alike. Try looking on a rubbish dump, the doctor snapped back. Both Laurent and Muss's eyes widened in astonishment. Why there in particular? Muss asked. Why not? the doctor replied. A mysterious object was discovered on one, and it has been transported to the Bastille, Laurent explained. And just before we came here, we heard that the abbot of Amboise was on his way to see the king for it to be burnt at the stake, Laurent added. What children you all are, the doctor exclaimed, and then exploded into uncontrollable laughter. Chapter 12 Burnt at the Stake Intimidated by the abbot's fire and brimstone eloquence, and, despite his curiosity about the satanic abode, as the abbot described it, which sat in the courtyard of the Bastille, the king gave his consent to burn it at the stake, although he insisted that he should be present when it was destroyed. The abbot agreed, but added that it could not be burnt immediately. Why not? the king was peeved. I must gird the armor of the Lord around his feeble vassal before I confront Lucifer and his demons in their infernal lair, 
the abbot rhetorized. Yeah, quite so, Lord Abbot, the king replied, unable to think of anything else. I shall attend upon your majesty one hour before the toxin sounds, the abbot proclaimed, then bowed and swept out of the room with Duval trotting at his heels. Anne gave herself up to one of the sentries at the entrance to the cardinal's palace and was taken to Colbert, who had her thrown into the cell with her brother and her aunt. Then he hurried to Duval's office to report that the wench was back. But to his surprise, Duval showed little interest, saying that for the time being, she was unimportant, as matters of far greater moment were afoot. For his part, Stephen stood on the riverbank, throwing pebbles into the Seine, whilst trying to resolve the dilemma of contacting the doctor. It was obvious that he was masquerading as the abbot of Amboise, and the excuses put forward by Laurent and Must to explain away his disappearance were patently lies. So Stephen decided to go back to de Coligny's house and have it out with them. But re-entering was almost as difficult as escaping had been. He was refused admittance by the guards because he had no appointment, no written authorization, and his appearance wearing Preslan's ill-fitting clothes was unprepossessing. But after a heated discussion which almost came to blows, he persuaded one of them to fetch the officer in charge. Take me at once to Vicomte Laurent or Nicholas Muss, he demanded vociferously of the officer who looked him up and down with cold eyes. State your business, the officer snapped. That's between myself and them, Stephen retorted. Then on your way with you, knave, the officer replied and turned to leave. All right. Tell them Stephen Taylor wants to discuss the other abbot of Amboise. The officer looked back at him. What do you mean by the other? Stephen prodded a forefinger toward the officer's gilded doublet. Just tell them what I've said. His voice was low and dangerous. The officer hesitated for a moment then told him to wait and went leisurely into the building. His return a few minutes later was more hurried and his manner respectful. Come with me, please, he requested, and I'll take you directly to them. Laurent was leaning against the wall beside the window overlooking the courtyard, and Muss was seated at his desk as Stephen was ushered into the office. Muss waved the officer away. He shut the door behind him. Stephen looked from one to the other. Well, where is he? he demanded. And don't bother to say with Preslin. But Stephen, I give you my word, he is, Laurent protested mildly. Not when he's pretending to be the abbot, Stephen threw back. There was an awkward pause during which Muss and Laurent exchanged a glance. So where is he? he repeated. Safely underground in Paris, Must said. Take me to him. No, not yet. Why not? There is a Catholic conspiracy against Admiral de Coligny, but we don't know what it is, and your friend in his role as the abbot is helping us to uncover it, Must explained. 
I don't see that's any reason to keep us apart, Stephen replied. Please, Stephen, his job is almost done, Mus said. Let him finish it. Stephen hesitated, and Laurent stepped in. Where's the girl? he asked, and Stephen recounted his adventures with Anne and the conclusion he had drawn. There's only one person who'll succeed in rescuing them, and that's the same one who got you out of there, Laurent said. Your friend, the doctor as the abbot. There was a knock at the door. Enter, Musk called out, and an officer of the court was announced. His Majesty the King requires the presence within the hour of your masters and yourselves to accompany His Majesty to the Bastille to witness the destruction on the stake of a fiendish machine, he proclaimed. Both Mus and Laurent inclined their heads in acceptance, and the officer withdrew. But Stephen was flabbergasted. Destruction, he yelled, but it belongs to the doctor. We know, and we've told the doctor it's to be burnt at the stake, Laurent replied calmly. But he, for some strange reason which he chose not to reveal, found it hysterically funny. I'm coming with you, Stephen said. Not in those clothes, my friend, Laurent chuckled. They're hardly fitting for the king's presence. But we'll deck you out as a courtier, and no one will recognize you. In that they were wrong. For, as the royal entourage stood in the Bastille courtyard awaiting the king's arrival, Duval sidled over to him when Laurent and Mus were talking to Henri of Navarre and the Admiral. Congratulations, the wench is under lock and key, he murmured with a faint wink. And Maudrevere's here, so it's planned for tomorrow. Oh, yes, Stephen muttered, understanding only that Anne was a prisoner again as Duval moved away and the heraldic trumpeters announced the arrival of the royal coach, with the king and the abbot at his side. The king beckoned de Coligny over to the open carriage. We chose not to invite their royal highnesses, our dear wife and our beloved mother, for fear they should be distressed, he snickered. Wise of us, eh, admiral? Most thoughtful of you, my liege, de Coligny replied. The king returned to the abbot. Proceed to God's work, my lord abbot, he said, and looked back at de Coligny. Do sit beside us, admiral, he patted the seat beside him as the abbot descended from the carriage. The abbot's habit was woven in gold and silver threads, and the top of the wooden crook he held was studded with diamonds and other precious stones. Behind the carriage had been a procession of clerics and acolytes with thuribles of smoking incense. Now they came forward, chanting and encircling the stake in the middle of which the TARDIS was completely hidden by the wood and the bales of straw. At the end of their chant, the abbot began to intone in a high falsetto voice and circle the stake. He was followed by a cleric, whom Stephen recognized as the rotund priest from the cathedral, carrying an ampulla from which the abbot sprinkled holy water onto the unlit fire. When he had completed the round, the abbot raised his staff into the air and, with his normal voice, cried out, Let this cleansing fire consume your demoniacal terrestrial abode 
and force you, Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, to return to Hades to suffer the unending agonies of perdition. He lowered the staff, held out his other hand, and commanded in ringing tones, Bring forth the flame of righteousness and of the true faith. An acolyte holding a flaming torch ran over and handed it to him. Hi thee hence, Satan! The abbot screamed and threw the torch onto one of the bales of straw. The king held a lace handkerchief to his nose and expressed the hope that the smoke would not start him coughing as he wanted to discuss the coming war against Spain with the admiral who beamed with pleasure. But the topic was barely broached when the intense heat of the bonfire drove everyone from the courtyard and the king, before returning to the Louvre, ordered the doors to be locked and desired everyone to accompany him to the Bastille at nine o'clock the following morning to view the cinders. Stephen was quietly frantic as he rode back with Muss behind de Coligny to the Admiral's house. You said the doctor laughed when you told him it was to be burnt at the stake? He kept his voice as controlled as he could. Yes, Stephen. He thought it was the funniest joke he's ever heard and called us all children, Muss replied, and then looked at Stephen questioningly. But what is it? The doctor didn't tell you? Stephen queried. Muss shook his head and said, No. He's the one to ask. Not me, Stephen replied. But you do know, Muss persisted. Some of the answers, yes, Stephen admitted. But not all of them by any means. Although he does, Muss stated. Stephen nodded. Every last one, he said and they rode the rest of the way in silence. The toxin bell began to toll as they reached the Admiral's house, and Stephen found himself installed in a comfortable room and invited to dine with Muss. The food was exemplary, and the wine vintage Burgundy, which made absurd the experiences of the two previous nights, Jail, to palace, and tomb. They've got Anne, you know, Stephen said regretfully as he toyed with his glass. So you believe, Muss replied. No, it's a fact, Stephen continued. Duval told me. Duval? At the Bastille this evening. I don't know who he thinks I am, but he came over and congratulated me for getting her back, Stephen answered. And then he went on to say that Morivard or Merivard or somebody was here and that it was on for tomorrow. I, I didn't understand a word. That name, Stephen, that name. What was it? Muss's voice was suddenly tense. I've told you, Stephen was taken aback, uh, Morivard or Merivard, something like that. I was worrying about Anne and then the trumpet started blaring. Morivard. Stephen, was it? Moravere? Muss carefully pronounced each syllable. Stephen turned the name over in his head before replying. Yes, Nicholas, that's it. Moravere. Muss pointed at Stephen. And Duval said it was on for tomorrow? Yes, Stephen replied. 
Muss's fist crashed down on the table. Dear God, he cried. They mean to assassinate him. Who? a bewildered Stephen asked. The Admiral. Admiral de Collini, Muss replied. Chapter 13 The Phoenix Muss took Stephen down to the cellars of the house and, lighting a burning brand, he led the way into the tunnels. For us, there's no such thing as the curfew, he told Stephen as they hurried towards the home of King Henri of Navarre. And the doctor is in one of these, Stephen said. A cave in a tunnel, though not this one, Moss replied, and explained about the network under Paris which the Huguenots used. They entered the house through the cellars and were informed that Laurent was dining with the newlyweds Henri and Marguerite. Pray interrupt them, Moss said. I must talk to Vicomte Laurent immediately. It's a matter of the utmost urgency. They were ushered into an anteroom where Laurent joined them moments later, still wiping his mouth with a napkin. What's amiss, Nicholas? he asked, and Moss repeated all that Stephen had told him. Laurent looked at Stephen. You're absolutely certain that was the name, Maurevere? As certain as I can be, Stephen replied. I've already told Nicholas my mind was elsewhere. He looked from one to the other. But who is this Maurevere? he asked. He's well known as a professional assassin who'll kill Catholic or Huguenot alike, as long as he's paid handsomely, Laurent explained and the Queen Mother's privy purse can well afford his fee. So, now we know who Bondo is, Muss closed his eyes. But when and where tomorrow? Someone must know. Not true, Nicholas, Laurent shook his head. Bondo chooses his own time and place. That's the way he works. But he'll need to know tomorrow's itinerary for the Admiral, Muss pointed out. Have you told de Collini about this yet? Laurent asked. No, Gaston, I haven't. It, it can wait until morning. Moss opened his eyes with a slow smile. By which time I shall have prepared a second schedule for the Admiral's day. We need a third, Nicholas, said Laurent. A glint came into his eyes as he turned to Stephen. Who does Duval think you are? he asked. I've no idea, Stephen confessed. I've only met the man three, no, four times, including this evening, but he's convinced I am someone else. Laurent pulled the bell cord and waited in silence until a liveried servant entered the room. Give my humble excuses to their majesties, but I am unavoidably detained, he said. And then added as an afterthought, fetch a pitcher of good burgundy and three goblets. The servant bowed and left the room as Laurent turned back to Stephen. Now, sit down and tell us everything you remember about your encounters with Duval. The pitcher was empty by the time Stephen finished, and Laurent called for another, then topped up their glasses. Duval must be convinced you are a secret agent for the abbot, he stated, and looked to Muss for confirmation. Don't you agree, Nicholas? Yes, I do, and I see what you're driving at, Muss replied. The third itinerary, a totally false one, 
is given surreptitiously by Stephen to Duval for Marshal Tavan at the aftermath of the stake tomorrow morning. Precisely, Laurent said. The first itinerary is posted publicly on the gates. The second is the one the Admiral will actually follow. And the third is to Fox Mourivere, alias Bondo. He stood up and looked at Stephen. If de Coligny dies tomorrow, there will be civil war. Then he chuckled grimly. Odd, isn't it, Nicholas, that we entrust the future of France to two strangers of whom we knew nothing 48 hours ago? Of whom we still know very little, Muss replied reflectively. Stephen drained his glass. I'll do as you ask. But immediately afterwards, I wish to be reunited with the doctor. Muss and Laurent exchanged a glance. For averting a bloodbath, that would be the least we could do, Laurent said. The morning of the 22nd of August 1572 was like a pageant in Paris, because word of the destruction of the satanic abode at the stake had spread quickly throughout the city. The sun shone down from a cloudless sky, and the streets from the Louvre to the Bastille were lined with crowds as the procession of clerics and dignitaries, including Stephen and Duval, Laurent and Mus, made its way towards the square to await the king's arrival with his court at nine o'clock. All around the Bastille was packed with the curious, but the area directly in front of the wooden doors and on either side was kept clear by halberdiers. The dignitaries dismounted their horses were led away. <laughs> Stephen gave Laurent and Muss a sideways glance, and Laurent's nod was almost imperceptible. Then Stephen moved towards Duval, who was talking to a secretary from the Duke of Anjou's retinue. But when Stephen caught Duval's eye, the conversation ended, and Duval came over cautiously to him. Stephen offered to shake hands, and the folded piece of parchment was neatly transferred from one palm to the other. Tavan, Stephen murmured and turned away. Cheering could be heard in the distance as the royal entourage approached the Bastille. Both Huguenots and Catholics were represented as Admiral de Coligny rode side by side with Marshal Tavan and Henri of Navarre with the Duke of Anjou. Behind them came the royal carriage with the king and the abbot of Amboise, and it stopped about twenty metres in front of the doors. Your Majesty, the power of the Lord shall be revealed, the abbot said fervently. All praise to God, the king replied, as the abbot descended from the carriage. The abbot wore the same habit as the previous evening, but on his head he wore a mitre instead of a cowl, and the staff he held in his left hand was made of silver and topped by a golden cruciform. With his right hand pressed firmly against the cross on his chest, he paced slowly towards the door between the two ranks of chanting clerics swinging their smoking thuribles of incense. When he reached the doors, the abbot struck them three times with the tip of his staff and commanded, in the name of the Lord, that they be opened. Two halberdiers and an officer who carried the keys approached. The doors were unlocked and swung back. 
There was a gasp of astonishment and consternation from everyone present except the abbot, who recoiled in horror. The TARDIS, impeccably clean, even shiningly so, stood in the middle of a carpet of ashes at the centre of the courtyard. Stephen's secondary reaction, after his immediate sense of relief that the TARDIS hadn't been destroyed, was twofold. The first was, knowing the Doctor, how could he have ever possibly imagined that it would burn? And the second was that, obviously, the Doctor had been on board and operated the EDF system. Suppressing a smile, Stephen looked around, half expecting to see the Doctor with his arms folded, laughing at everybody. But the only person who resembled the Doctor was the Abbot, and he was apoplectic with rage and humiliation. Shut those accursed doors so that we look no more upon that diabolical abomination! he screamed, and retreated with a noticeable absence of dignity to the royal carriage, where the king asked him what he proposed to do next. Your Majesty must call an immediate council of war, a Catholic council to which heretical Huguenots are excluded, the abbot snapped. If my lord abbot so wishes, the king replied, but once matters of religion and this thing, he waved his hand towards the closed doors, are settled, we propose a general council of war. You talk of Spain, sire? The abbot asked with incredulity. But the king merely smiled and ordered a return to the Louvre. We struck a bargain, Stephen reminded Muss as they rode back to de Coligny's house, and I've kept my side of it. We'll honour ours as soon as the admiral's safely home, Muss replied, and then looked at Stephen intently before he asked, What is that phoenix we have just seen? Something indestructible that has nothing to do with the devil, but belongs to the doctor, Stephen answered. Who is a sorcerer? Muss said. Stephen smiled. A magician, rather, because of his intelligence. Muss was curious. What is his learning and where did he study? I don't know, Stephen admitted. We met on our travels. You're a fortunate young man, Muss said. Such a companion is rare. Don't I know it, Stephen replied, suppressing his laughter. When they reached the house, Muss extracted a promise from de Coligny not to leave it without him. Reluctantly, the Admiral agreed, saying that he didn't know what the fuss was all about, as no one was going to assassinate him. His relationship with the King was too close. But nonetheless, de Coligny thanked him for his help, and bade him farewell before Muss took Stephen to the tunnels and a waiting dogcart. This is blindfold astronaut training, Stephen muttered to himself, as they hurtled through the darkness towards the cave where the doctor greeted him. My dear boy, how nice to see you. Exhilarating means of transportation, that, isn't it? He enthused, pointing to the dog cart. <laughs> now, come and meet my friends. Taking a speechless Stephen by one elbow, he led him over to the group of smiling apothecaries and their wives. Stephen was still recovering from the shock of the doctor's casual manner towards him, 
when Laurent came racing into the cave, jumped out of the dog cart and drew Mus to one side. There are problems, Nicholas, he said. The king has called an extraordinary meeting of the council. Why? Mus asked, and Laurent glanced at Stephen and the doctor. The abbot called for one, Laurent explained. It's about their machine, and the Huguenots are excluded, but there's to be a general meeting afterwards, so now none of our itineraries apply. It has created the same problem for Maurevere, Mus observed. He won't know either where the admiral will be from one minute to the next. But he's so resourceful, and he's operating on his own. By your expressions, gentlemen, there would appear to be a certain difficulty, if not several, in which we are involved, the doctor remarked, coming over to them with Stephen. Doctor, this is no longer your concern, Laurent replied. Both of you have honoured your agreements with us, so you're free to leave and continue your journey when you will. Hmm, the doctor said after a brief reflection, and turned to Stephen. Are you ready to quit Paris, young man? he asked. No, doctor, I'm not, Stephen replied. Oddly enough, neither am I, the doctor added, as there is still the last act of the Abbot of Amboise to play. End of Disc 3 Disc 4 Chapter 14 Talk of War The Abbot of Amboise's Catholic Council of War was well attended, but short-lived. The King, the Queen Mother, the Dukes of Anjou and Guise, as well as Marshal Tavan, were there. But, as the Queen Mother pointed out, the abbot was supposed to be their spiritual adviser rather than the other way around. Even his harangue about the Huguenots practising the black arts produced no more than a comment from the king, that perhaps a Huguenot cleric should be brought in to deal with the situation. That, the abbot screamed, would be to yield all of France to heresy and hell and, as the most illustrious cardinal of Lorraine was absent, he, the abbot of Amboise, was the only person morally and spiritually equipped to solve the problem. You could try blowing it up, my lord, Marshal Tavan suggested. Or drowning it in the Seine, <laughs> the king tittered. Your Majesty, this is not a matter for levity, the abbot said crossly. We quite agree, my lord, the king replied, and so we shall leave its resolution in your... He hesitated for a second. Capable hands. Then he turned to a courtier. Are our Huguenot advisers in attendance? They are, Your Majesty, the courtier answered. Fetch them in, and we shall apply our mind to other matters, but only briefly, as we are in the mood to play tennis, the king said. Feeling openly humiliated, the abbot stormed from the council chamber, while Duval hastily passed on to a surprised divan, the parchment Stephen had slipped him. From the abbot's spy, Marshal, he murmured confidentially before hurrying after the abbot. Outside, they ignored the Huguenots, although Laurent inclined his head with a mocking smile to an unbending Duval. 
Moravere was average in height and build, and as faceless as most of the thousands who thronged the Paris streets. He was indifferently dressed in a plain blouse, hose with buckled shoes, and a floppy hat without a plume. Only two features distinguished him. His eyes, which were pale blue and alert, always darting from side to side, and the oblong box he carried under one arm. When he came to the house on the corner of the street with a commanding view of Le Grand Pont and the Louvre, he looked about him, took some pass keys from his pocket, unlocked the door, and slipped inside. Ah, our loyal admiral, the king called out as de Coligny approached the two thrones. Give us your thoughts on how to dispose of that object sitting in the Bastille. Why, my liege, I'd make it a present for Spain, he replied with a smile. Delivered by our force of arms. The king shrieked with laughter, but the queen mother and the other Catholics were not amused. Your proposed Spanish adventure is an obsession, Tavan snapped. Not so, Marshal, de Coligny retorted. It reflects my determination to give France a common cause and so prevent further civil strife. The royal marriage has achieved that, the Duke of Anjou said. If that were true, then I should find myself doubly blessed, Henri of Navarre replied, but I fear it is not so. Oh, what scares you, cousin? Anjou retaliated. An incident blown up out of all proportion to put Paris in a tumult, Navarre answered. But... Who would do such a thing? the king inquired. They are called fanatics, sire, de Coligny said. Tavan snorted with derision. Are you not one admiral, with your talk of war with Spain? If you count my will to bring Frenchmen together, not torn asunder by religious polemics, as the act of a fanatic, de Coligny threw back, then yes, I also am one of them. As we are too, good admiral, the king echoed, jumping to his feet. So let us prepare for war. The queen mother stood up and faced her son. We cannot bear the expense of war with Spain, she stated. So you keep telling us, mother, endlessly. And then began to cough and retch. The Queen Mother walked from the council chamber whilst the others waited in an embarrassed silence until the king recovered, wiping the flecks of blood from the corners of his mouth. We adjourn this council until three o'clock this afternoon, he gasped, and leaning on the arm of a courtier, left the chamber as they all bowed respectfully. Throughout the audience, one Catholic had not said a word. He was Francois, Duke of Guise, and the brother of the Cardinal of Lorraine. Their father, also Francois of Guise, had instigated and led the massacre at Wassy ten years earlier, only to be assassinated himself a year later, and there were still rumours that Coligny was implicated in the murder. For generations now, the Guise family residence had stood on a street corner, which dominated both Le Grand Pont and the Louvre. 
The Doctor and Stephen's final mission was to be a joint assault on the Cardinal's palace, so they made their plans together. The Doctor's objective was the Abbot's office and a piece of parchment bearing his seal. Stephen's was the cells and the rescue of Anne and her family. There shouldn't be any major problems, Stephen said. We need the abbot out of the way, but Duval preferably at his desk. So you, as the abbot, ordered Duval to hand over Anne, her brother and her aunt into my custody as your secret agent. And whilst we're down in the cells, I purloin the page of parchment and put his seal on it, the doctor interposed. The writing can be done later. No, no, dear boy, I foresee no difficulties at all. Stephen leant forward confidentially across the table. What about the assassination of Admiral de Colini, Doctor? What about it? The Doctor's voice had an edge. Well, aren't we going to do anything? I'm not in the habit of meddling with history, the Doctor replied frostily. Oh, Stephen sounded surprised. But isn't getting Anne out of prison meddling? Isn't... The parchment meddling? Uh, not at all. I, as myself, play no part in these deceits, the doctor protested. The person responsible is the abbot of Amboise, who, by chance, resembles me. <laughs> That's called begging the question, doctor, Stephen retaliated. Absolutely not. Not at all. The doctor was most indignant. Do you know where... And when it will take place? Stephen paced out his words. Of course I do, the doctor snapped back. I've read my history books. But you'll do nothing to avert it. Not even lift my little finger, the doctor replied, raising it. Don't you understand? I cannot, simply cannot. Nor can you, he added adamantly. Stephen sighed. Very well, he said. Have it your own way. History's way, the doctor said, and returned briskly to the business in hand. We need to know as soon as possible when the abbot will leave the palace, hopefully without Duval, and also where he goes. He called over David and asked him to obtain the information. Morifair climbed the stairs to the top floor of the house and entered the attic which ran the length of the building. There were several skylights set in the roof, but at the far end was a window which he opened. He looked out at the streets below. No one coming from the Louvre and going to Le Grand Pont or vice versa could avoid being in his sight. He smiled and opened the oblong box. It contained an arquebus a handheld rifle of the latest design, which was supported in a crutch to make it steadier and more accurate when fired. He set the arquebus in it and trained the weapon on the street. It was perfect. He couldn't miss. Then he took the gun from the crutch and began to prime it. As soon as he reached the Cardinal's palace, the abbot went directly to the reference library and, with Duval's help, began frantically searching through the tomes on devilry for something that resembled the TARDIS. But they found nothing. There is a material, 
woven by men that cannot be burnt, my lord, Duval volunteered. The same must be true of a metal forged in hell, like the hardened lava from a volcano. A hellish alchemy, the abbot mused. That is a possibility, Duval. There must be something here on the subject. He began looking along the bookshelves for an appropriate volume. Duval felt pleased with himself and thought a further comment would not be out of order. It is a pity the day's itinerary for the admiral had to be changed, he ventured, particularly after all your man's pains to obtain the real one. Hmm. Yes, the abbot replied abstractedly as he reached for a book. It may be in this one, he began to thumb through the pages. He passed it to me so neatly, Duval continued, no one could have seen, and it would have made Bondo's work much easier. The abbot shut the book and was about to return it to the shelf, but turned to Duval instead. What are you talking about? he snapped, sounding like the doctor. Your secret agent, Duval replied. My secret agent? The abbot exploded, sounding exactly like the doctor. Explain yourself, man! Which Duval did, starting at the auberge where he first met them both, and up to his last encounter with Stephen outside the Bastille. During this lengthy recital, the abbot continued his search for the book and did not interrupt. Though when he was referred to, he looked sharply at him. And I handed on the itinerary to Marshal Tavan, Duval ended nervously. The abbot took down another book and silently looked through it before turning to Duval. I don't know whether you are a fool, a knave, or delusional, he finally announced. A fool, unwittingly duped by the Huguenots, a knave in collusion with them, or delusional, and imagining all. I am none of these. On my sacred oath, I swear it, my lord, the unhappy Duval pleaded. Beware, my son, for your immortal soul, the abbot warned, for I have never set foot, disguised or otherwise, in the auberge you named. I have no secret agent in Paris, most certainly not the man you brought before me, and whose release I am supposed to have ordered. Duval shook his head in total confusion. Return to the office and prepare a document of exorcism for the locksmith, the abbot ordered. When I return from the Bastille, I shall sign and personally execute it. Word of the abbot's departure for the Bastille soon reached the doctor and Stephen, both of whom were now dressed for their roles. <sighs> Time for the last act, doctor. Stephen said with a grin. After which, my boy, the final curtain, the doctor replied theatrically as they stepped into the dog cart and raced off along the tunnels. Chapter 15 Face to Face The Alsatians were running at breakneck speed when the doctor, to Stephen's amazement, called a halt. Is something the matter, Stephen asked, holding up the flickering taper to peer at him. 
Nothing of any importance, dear boy, just a penalty of old age, the doctor replied. I need a breath of fresh air. He asked the driver where the steps beside them led. Up to a small courtyard that's accessible to the street, the driver replied. I'll be back directly, the doctor said and took the taper. Stephen offered to go with him. Ah, there's no need, my lad. I won't be a moment, the doctor reiterated and left them sitting in total darkness as he climbed the steps to the small door at the top. He placed the lit taper in a special holder on the wall, unlocked the door and stepped out into the courtyard. He crossed it quickly to the street door, which was barred from the inside. He took off the bar, opened the door a crack and put his eye to it. All was as he had anticipated. It was almost three o'clock, and Henri of Navarre, with Admiral de Coligny having lunch together, were making their way on foot towards the Louvre. Laurent and Muss followed them, scanning either side of the street anxiously. At various intervals there were men and women leaning idly against the walls in the mid-afternoon heat, or chatting to one another. They were Huguenot agents on the lookout for Maurevair, who, from the attic window, saw the four men approaching. He rested the loaded arquebus on its crutch, cocked the firing mechanism, and took careful aim, as there would only be enough time for one shot. He bit his lower lip in concentration as his target came closer and closer to the accurate range of his gun. The Admiral was only seconds away from certain death. The Doctor had the self-same thought as the party drew level with the door. It was now or never, the moment to commit the ultimate offence of a Time Lord, an intervention in history. He threw open the door and stepped onto the street. Admiral! he called out at the same moment as Maurevere fired. Surprised by the voice, de Coligny half-turned towards the Doctor and the charge from Maurevere's gun struck his right shoulder instead of entering his heart. The doctor dashed back into the courtyard, slamming and barring the door behind him. Then, over to and through the small door to lock it, grab the taper and descend the steps gracefully. <sighs> I feel much better for that, <laughs> he announced as he clambered into the dog cart beside Stephen. It did me a lot of good. And they rode on. There had been another witness to the attempt on de Coligny's life. Duval had watched it from the office window and had seen the abbot, with his own eyes, step out onto the street. Or had he? Was it all in his mind? Was he suffering from delusions, as the abbot had suggested? He threw himself into a chair, put his head between his hands and groaned in anguish. He was still sitting in the chair when the doctor swept into the room, followed by Stephen. Is it uh, well done? The doctor demanded haughtily as Duval struggled to his feet, his mouth hanging open in astonishment. My lord does not know, Duval stammered as he stared at Stephen. If I knew, I would not have asked, the doctor retorted. It has failed, my lord. I saw him helped away to his house by Henri of Navarre, Laurent, and Muss. 
Duval replied, his eyes still fixed on Stephen. Why do you stare at him? The doctor's voice was suspicious. Do you not know him? Stephen winked at Duval. Oh, my lord, why am I kept in this quandary? Duval cried. For one minute you acknowledge him, and the next you don't. You sign his release and then deny it. I am here to serve you and the Catholic cause. My lord, his voice was shrill. But what would you have me believe? In God's work, my son, there are secrets with which few are entrusted, the doctor intoned pompously as Stephen suppressed a guffaw. Now place the Huguenot family in the custody of my agent and see that his orders are obeyed without question. Duval led Stephen down to the cellars and left him instructing Colbert to return Anne and her family home, where they were to remain under guard until further notice. Duval returned to the abbot's office, where the doctor had duly stolen the piece of parchment, stamped it, and tucked it under his habit. My lord abbot, I told you that I had witnessed the attempt on Admiral de Coligny's life, Duval began nervously. Yes, the doctor agreed from behind the abbot's desk. And earlier in the library you suggested that I might be suffering from delusions, Duval continued. The doctor realized that the inconsistencies had seriously begun to show, but all he said was, Hmm, 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 anticipating the next remark. Yet, I swear, I saw someone who should never have been there. Duval's voice quavered. Whom did you see? The doctor asked blandly. You, my Lord Abbot. The doctor laughed. But Duval, <laughs> I was at the Bastille where I met my agent. The doctor shook his head. No, my son, whomsoever you saw, it was not me. At that instant, the door opened, and the abbot of Amboise, the real abbot, came into the office. He stopped in his tracks, thunderstruck. Duval stared dumbfounded from one to the other. The doctor was surprised but recovered quickly, as he had always known he ran the risk of such an encounter, so he remained seated at the desk and pointed at the abbot. Him, perhaps? he asked. Duval drew his sword. Who is this impostor who usurps my office? the abbot shouted. The doctor stood up his eyes glacial. I was about to ask the same question, he said sharply. Duval swung the tip of his sword between them both. One of you lies, he almost choked on the words. That is obvious, the doctor replied, but which of us is the liar? Am I? Or is he? I am the abbot of Amboise, the abbot protested at the top of his voice. So you say, the doctor answered. Perhaps others should decide. There is nothing to decide. I am the abbot of Amboise, the abbot screamed. Kill him! The doctor did not flinch as Duval turned his sword on him. Kill him? I order you, 
Kill him, the abbot screamed again. There speaks a man of God, the doctor said calmly. Or is it the devil himself? The doubt in Duval's eyes turned suddenly to resolve, and he spun around. Begone, Satan! It was a war cry as he ran the abbot of Amboise through, killing him instantly. The doctor leant on the desk and reflected that if one of them had to die, he preferred fate this way, and besides, fanatics of any kind were always very dangerous. There was a knock on the door, and Duval looked nervously at the doctor. What is it? the doctor called out. My lord abbot, you are summoned immediately to his majesty the king, a voice replied. The doctor was annoyed, but it was not the moment to let Duval discover his blunder. Call my carriage, we shall be there, he ordered, and looked at Duval. You'd better attend me, Duval, but no word of this, not yet. It has many ramifications. I understand, my lord. Duval's hands were shaking as he replaced his sword in its scabbard. The doctor gave him a goblet of water. Drink this, he said and Duval gulped it down before they left for the Louvre. Stephen had given his orders to Colbert, with a wink for Anne, and was watching the small detachment march away when he saw the abbot's carriage with Duval and the doctor drive off towards the Louvre. He wondered which one it was as he walked back to the abbot's office, where he found the body. Doctor! he cried out momentarily rooted to the spot in horror. Then, recovering slightly and hoping against hope that it was not the doctor, he closed and locked the door, knelt down beside it, and felt for a pulse. There was none. He ripped open the habit and put his ear to its chest, straining to hear a heartbeat, however faint. Again, there was none. He sat back on his heels and stared at the face, in a desperate attempt to find a distinguishing mark, a scar, anything to reveal that the cadaver was not the doctor. But the resemblance was uncanny. He searched the corpse thoroughly, seeking something that would enable him to identify it one way or the other, even if it were the TARDIS key, to confirm his worst fear. But there was nothing. And staring at the mortal remains in front of him, he began to realise the magnitude of his own dilemma. If this carcass, for that's what it was, was once the doctor, then where was the key? In the doctor's everyday clothes at the cave with Presla and the apothecaries? He could only assume so, but even if he were to find it, had he the knowledge and the skill to operate the TARDIS alone? Or was he doomed to spend the rest of his days trapped in Paris during the second half of the 16th century? As he slowly stood up, he knew that finally he must go back through the tunnels to the cave and wait in the desperate hope that the doctor would come charging along in a dog cart. The king had been playing tennis when he was informed of the attempt on de Coligny's life and he immediately ordered the council to be convened. And that includes our mother, he added, as he stomped off the lawn, waving his tennis racket at the courtier. 
At the assembly, the king listened attentively as Muss and Laurent recounted the events. The queen mother sat tight-lipped, whilst the dukes of Anjou and Guise, as well as Tavannes, seemed mildly bored with the proceedings. What made our dear admiral so fortuitously turn away as the shot was fired? the king asked when they were done. Laurent and Musk glanced at one another and the doctor before replying. Some chance disturbance on the street, sire, Musk said. Of what nature? the king inquired. Someone shouted, and praise be to God, your majesty, the admiral turned to see who it was, Laurent replied. And who was it? the king persisted. A stranger, my liege, wishing the admiral long life, Henri of Navarre lied, as Duval looked from one to the next, knowing that all three were lying. Yet his abbot stayed silent. And in your opinion, where was this shot fired from? The king leant forward on his throne, and the Catholics ceased to be bored. But Laurent took the question in his stride. From his attic, sire, he said nonchalantly, pointing at de Guise. It was the only possible place. You'll pay for that, de Guise drew his sword. Where and when you will, Laurent threw back, sword in hand. Put up your swords, gentlemen, the king commanded. And both men bowed and sheathed them. Has this... Woodbury assassin been apprehended? No, your majesty, Mus answered, his eyes fixed on Tavan. In the confusion, Maurevere, alias Bondo, fled. You know the assassin's name? The king was amazed. Then Laurent made a fatal mistake. We know all about the conspiracy against the admiral, sire, he said. Chapter 16 A Rescue There was a stunned silence after Laurent's laconic remark. The Queen Mother glanced anxiously at Tavan, and the Duke of Anjou swallowed while de Guise stared with open hatred at Laurent. The doctor stood quietly as Duval squirmed uncomfortably at his side. We would hear of this conspiracy the king said eventually. Uh, no one conspired against the admiral, your majesty, Tavan protested. Then what did we witness? A hunting accident? Henri of Navarre did not spare his sarcasm. A mad assassin's bullet does not make a conspiracy, the Duke of Anjou retorted. If that shot had been mortal, my liege, as it was intended to be. All France would be embroiled in yet another religious war, Muss observed. God be praised for well-wishers, eh, my lord abbot? The king said earnestly, as Laurent looked at the doctor and tried to discern which one he was. And now, pray, give us your thoughts on this distressing affair. Your Majesty does me great honour to consider that my humble opinions are of merit in front of the Queen Mother and these noble lords, the doctor replied, inclining his head to the king. I 
have already addressed this council on the question of war with Spain, and I said then that Catholic must not fight Catholic. Now, sire, permit me to develop that theme. Huguenot must not take up arms against another of his own faith, nor, the doctor extended one arm in emphasis, pointed at the two groups of men who stood on either side of the thrones, and then spoke with firmness and authority. Nor Catholic against Huguenot, nor Huguenot against Catholic. There were sharp intakes of breath from the Catholic camp, and the horrendous truth of whom he had killed began to dawn on Duval. Both Mus and Laurent knew it was the doctor who was speaking. We are all God's children, each and every one of us, the doctor continued. And it is not by acts of war nor bloody deeds that his kingdom shall be attained. Rather, should we look to our own hearts and find therein those three blessed precepts of love, humility, and charity. No one moved in the ensuing silence until the doctor bowed to the king. With your majesty's permission, I shall retire to Notre Dame and pray for all our immortal souls. The king gestured to the doctor with an open hand. It behoves us all to dwell upon your words, Lord Abbot, he said, granting the doctor's request. Stay here, Duval, and represent your abbot, the doctor said brusquely, and left the chamber. As soon as he was outside the door, Tavan asked the king to adjourn the council. Not yet, Marshal, the king replied. We also have something to say concerning Catholic and Huguenot. <laughs> Your claim there was no conspiracy against our loyal de Coligny, and indeed, that may be true. But nonetheless, we have a special charge for you. As of this moment, we hold you responsible for the Admiral's safety. Station your men around his house and mark this well, Marshal. If anything further were to happen to him, you would pay dearly for it. Tavan bowed as the king turned to de Guise. As for you, de Guise, you also have a service to render your king, he said. We declare our belief that the shot was fired from your residence, with or without your knowledge, as may be. But we require you to bring to justice the would-be assassin, Mourever, do we make ourselves clear? Abundantly so, my liege, de Guise replied acidly and bowed. This council is adjourned until... The king hesitated. No, not tomorrow. We shall play tennis all day. Until the next day, the feast of St. Bartholomew. With the queen mother white with fury beside him, the king left the council chamber. Stephen was still badly shocked when he reached the cave. He had turned over the probabilities and the possibilities that the body he'd left lying on the floor was the doctor's, until rational thought was almost beyond him. He sat heavily at a table and put his head in his hands. 
Preslan came over to him. Where's the doctor? he asked. Is something wrong? Stephen stared at him uncomprehendingly for several seconds. Then a look of total astonishment came over his face as he jumped to his feet and hugged the bemused apothecary. He's alive, he shouted. He's got to be alive! The body didn't have the parchment on it! Stephen, what on earth are you talking about? Preslin asked, disengaging himself. Stephen tried to explain, but the words wouldn't come out of his mouth in the proper order. It doesn't matter. He was close to tears of relief. It really doesn't matter. But it did, a little later, when the doctor arrived in a dog cart. Oh, you wicked old man, Stephen cried reproachfully, letting me believe that the body might have been yours. Oh, my dear boy, how could you have thought that for one moment is quite beyond me? the doctor replied in surprise. You know my knack, he clicked his fingers, for dominating a given situation. <laughs> then he took the parchment out of his habit, called for a quill pen and some ink, and sat down to work. Two other encounters were taking place about the same time, and neither was as pleasant as the doctor's reunion with Stephen. The first was between King Charles and the Queen Mother in his chambers at the Louvre, and any form of royal protocol was dismissed out of hand. "'I gave orders to be left alone, Mother,' he said angrily as she marched into his room. "'It's become your notion of late to give orders without consulting me,' she snapped back. "'I happen to be the King of France, Madame. You'd do best to remember it,' he retorted. Catherine snorted with derision. A pale shadow of a king you make, she taunted. Your younger brother, Henri, will be ten times the king you are. Guard your tongue, mother, or you'll end your days in a convent, he threatened. Child, she sneered, you haven't the courage. He reached for the bell rope. All I have to do is pull this. Do so. I beseech you, summon your guards, have me arrested. But you will need a good reason for your counsel and for the people of France who love me. That I'll supply, he answered categorically. The conspiracy by you, Tavan, my brother, and de Guise, to assassinate Admiral de Coligny. Don't forget the abbot of Amboise, she sneered, for all his pious words. He had a hand in it as well. I'll s s send you all to the block, he stammered. For trying to rid France of a foe, she mocked. The Admiral's my friend. You, madame, God help me, are the enemy. Am I? I think not, my son. I care too much for my country to see it face ruin, as de Coligny. Every Huguenot would have it. She paused for effect. You have a nest of vipers in your court, your majesty. She spat out the words. You even married your sister off to one, that Huguenot from Navarre, who'll usurp your throne as quick as look at you. 
The king tried to reply, but suddenly his lungs were on fire, and with the first rasping cough, blood welled up into his mouth. Any energy, any resistance he had, ebbed away as the queen mother drew his head to her bosom. There, little one, there, she said, and caressed his back. The second meeting took place in the office of the late abbot, who still lay on the floor. Duval told his story of the two abbots to Tavan, Anjou, and de Guise, all of whom listened attentively, with an occasional glance at the body. When they'd finished, Tavan slowly circled the corpse. How can you serve us in death? he asked, staring down at it better than you did alive. We'll put about the story that the false abbot's Huguenot secret agent entered the office and slew him, de Guise suggested. It's not enough, Tavan countered and pointed to the body. That must be used. Throw it onto the streets. Let the people see how treacherous these Huguenots are, the Duke of Anjou proposed. Tavan chuckled. <laughs> We'll take the words from Navarre's own mouth and blow up an incident out of all proportion to put Paris in a tumult, even all of France. He looked at the other men in turn, finally settling his eyes on Duval. Personally, my friend, I think you killed the right man, he said, and pointed again at the cadaver. Let it be found in the morning, more cruelly assassinated by the Huguenots, in revenge for the attempt on de Coligny's life. They left the office, locking it behind them, as Duval, with renewed courage, told them of Anne's release. Get them back, Tavan ordered. I shall attend to it personally, Marshal, Duval replied. Laurent entered the cave as the doctor was signing the parchment with the abbot's signature. You were magnificent, Doctor, he exclaimed. They learned who I am not, the Doctor replied, and Duval must have shown them the body by now. Whose body? Laurent asked, and the Doctor told him all that had happened. Tavan is wily, Laurent said, and he'll turn it to his advantage if he can. He dare not touch the Admiral, but he will try to find a way to attack us, where are we the most vulnerable, he asked. Anne Chaplet and her family, Stephen replied, and briefly told Laurent how he'd rescued them. Then we've no time to waste, Laurent said. Come on, Stephen, and you as well, David. The three of them leapt into two dog carts and raced away. Duval beat them to the house, but only just, and from their cover behind a wall, they could see him with Colbert and four halberdiers who surrounded Anne, her brother, and her aunt. Six of them to three of us, David growled. Two to one, they're good odds. No, six to four, Laurent observed, looking at Anne's fourteen-year-old brother, Raoul. He's a likely-looking lad. What's the plan? Stephen asked. Let Duval half-mount his horse and then we'll take them out. Laurent replied as he drew his sword. David spat on his hands and rubbed them together before drawing his. 
Stephen unsheathed the rapier that hung at his side and hoped he hadn't forgotten the fencing lessons he'd taken at the Space Academy. Now Laurent roared, and they rushed out into the open and towards Duval and his men, who were taken completely by surprise. Duval almost fell as he tried to free his foot from the stirrup, and Colbert fumbled for the hilt of his sword three times before he succeeded in drawing it. Raoul wrested one of the pikes away from a halberdier and began swinging it like a battle-axe, which sent the other scurrying to safety before trying to return to the attack. "'That's my hearty!' David yelled as he grabbed a pike by the shaft, pushed it to one side and ran the halberdier through before turning to take on another. Laurent had gone straight for Duval, and they faced one another for a moment before they began to fence. They cut, thrust, and parried with great skill, and fought with ferocity and verve. Then one of Duval's thrusts ripped through the sleeve of Laurent's blouse and cut his arm. First blood, Laurent observed, fighting tenaciously, but his arm was bleeding badly, and he knew he had to finish it swiftly or lose. Duval sensed the same thing and forced his attack with renewed vigour. Deliberately, Laurent gave ground, drawing Duval on and on, whilst waiting for the mistake he was certain Duval would make, overconfidence. Duval was fencing for the sword arm, and Laurent kept parrying it to one side until Duval's body was almost unprotected, and Laurent saw his chance. He flicked Duval's blade aside again, and, lightning fast, threw his sword into the other hand, and with two rapid advances, thrust the injured arm forward until his sword was buried to the hilt in Duval's chest. Stephen's battle was less spectacular, though he succeeded in holding Colbert at bay, but the moment Colbert saw Duval fall to the ground, he threw down his sword and took to his heels, with the one remaining pikeless halberdier following him as fast as possible, while the toxin began to chime. Chapter 17 Good Company All In the safety of the cave, Laurent's arm was dressed and put in a sling, while David recounted heroic deeds on everyone's part, not failing to mention young Raoul, who beamed with pride. Then David pointed at Stephen. But him! You'd have thought he was a wild Scot the way he was swinging his rapier! Like it was a claymore, David shouted as everyone laughed. Poor fat little Colbert was scared out of his wits. Laurent went over to the doctor. You'll be continuing your journey in the morning, he said. Uh, yes, just uh, before the curfew's lifted, the doctor replied. I have uh, a few matters to settle first. We shall never be able to express our gratitude. Laurent added. The doctor looked at him ruefully. You have uh, nothing to thank me for, young man. You are too modest, sir. Laurent smiled, and then his expression became wistful. I know it's not yet done here, between Catholic and Huguenot. The suspicions, the mistrust, the deceits are so deep-rooted... They will take years to eradicate, far beyond my time, I fear. The doctor said nothing. Then suddenly Laurent's face brightened and he spread out his unslung arm. 
Ladies and gentlemen, he cried aloud, let us be merry tonight with good wine and good victuals, for we are of good company all. At the Cardinal's Palace, a quivering Colbert reported Duval's and the halberdier's deaths to Tavan. Ah, so much the better, the marshal replied. Let their bodies lie dumb witnesses to other lies will tell. Then he left for his meeting with the Queen Mother, who received him in her apartments. You have the king's consent, your majesty, he asked immediately. She held out a piece of parchment which bore the king's seal. Having signed it with tearful blusterings, his majesty announced that he would not quit his chambers until it was done, she said with a venomous smile. The phrase his majesty employed was quite poetic. Let no soul rest alive to reproach us. Here's the list of those Huguenots who are to die. Tavan held out a scroll which the Queen Mother threw aside. No soul alive, she repeated. The marshal looked at her with horror. All, madame? he asked. All, she replied. And Navarre, your son-in-law, what of him? He will pay for his pretensions to the throne. Madame, Navarre must not die, Tavan exclaimed. Must not, Marshal? She was outraged. Only pious tears will be shed for the massacre of a few thousand Huguenots, Tavan argued, but a king's blood will bring about a holy war, one we could not contain. We owe no Huguenot an act of mercy, the Queen Mother countered. Mercy, Madame, never, but as a political act, Tavan insisted. Sparing him is imperative. The Queen Mother thought for a time before she replied, Very well, Marshal. But he and our daughter must quit Paris, she stated, and our son, Henri of Anjou, will escort them to safety. However, see that they are gone tomorrow, for the gates of Paris will be closed before dawn on St. Bartholomew's Day, and then not even we could save him. Tavan glanced at the discarded scroll of names, bowed to the Queen Mother, and left his duty to be done. The doctor awoke refreshed, stretched, splashed some water on his face and looked around the cave. He thought one end of it looked like kennels, as there were several dog carts standing in the line. It will soon be sunrise, Laurent said with Stephen at his side and I know you want to be on your way. Mm, uh, yes, yes, the doctor replied, collecting his thoughts before he called Preslin over. This document, he said as he picked up the parchment, is your passepartout out of France, signed and sealed by the abbot himself. It'll see you and your friends safely to Germany. Thank you, doctor. Each one in turn gave him a Gallic hug before they rode off. And what about Anne, Raoul, and their aunt? Stephen asked discreetly. The doctor looked at him sharply. What about them? Anne helped me, found me a room at the Hotel Lutece, and Raoul fought with us against Duval, 
Can't you help them as well? he pleaded. Eh, they mustn't return home, Laurent added. It's too dangerous. Couldn't they come with us? Stephen ventured. Out of the question, the doctor exploded, and then looked at them in resignation. Oh, very well, he sighed and pointed to one of the two remaining dog carts. Take that to the eastern outskirts of Paris and then go as quickly as you can on foot to Picardy. Picardy? Raoul asked. Why Picardy? Because I say so, the doctor replied firmly. Then Picardy it is, Anne said. She kissed the doctor and Stephen on both cheeks and clambered into the dog cart with Raoul and her aunt. But what will I do in Picardy? the aunt wailed. Oh, try growing roses, ma'am, the doctor snapped in exasperation and slapped one of the Alsatians on his rump, sending the dog cart skittering off into the tunnels. And now, young man, I think it's time for us to go, the doctor said as he slipped the abbot's habit over his own clothes. But you don't need those any more, Stephen protested. Officially, the abbot of Amboise isn't dead yet, the doctor replied and took Laurent's hand between his. Eh, my best regards to Nicholas Muss. He's with the Admiral, Laurent replied. Where his duty lies, the doctor said, and smiled. Please accept the word of a false abbot when he says, God be with you. Laurent nodded and everyone watched in silence as the doctor and Stephen rode off into the tunnel. They entered the Bastille by a secret door as the bells of Notre Dame began to chime and the doctor handed Stephen the key to the TARDIS. Open up the ship, he said. I won't be a moment. He went into the guardroom where the officer of the guard leapt to his feet. What would my Lord Abbot at this hour? he exclaimed. Take me to the possessed locksmith, the doctor ordered and the officer of the guard led the way to the dungeon where the poor man still hung, chained to the wall. The doctor went over to him, stretched out his arms and placed his hands on the locksmith's shoulders. Be gone, foul demon, he intoned with severity and jiggled his arms up and down for good effect, then ordered the luckless man cut down, fed and released. Hey, what about my betties? The locksmith quavered. Ah, make another set, ungrateful wretch, the doctor said, and left. In the guardroom, he announced that he was about to exercise the TARDIS, but that no one should look at it whilst he did so. Obediently, the guards all turned their faces to the wall as the doctor went out onto the courtyard and entered the TARDIS, locking the door behind him. While the doctor was taking off the habit, Stephen asked him what the abbot's last role had been. On his desk at the cardinal's palace, I saw an exorcism order for the hapless locksmith, so I executed it, the doctor replied, rearranging his cravat. And why Picardy for Anne? The doctor smiled. Because the governor of Picardy was one of the few who refused to obey the king's edict. Stephen thought about that reply before he put his next question. And Laurent? What would you have expected of him, the doctor replied, other than 
to fight to the last? Must as well, I suppose. He was thrown lifeless out of the window together with de Colini's body. The doctor stated the fact and then added two others. Ten thousand Huguenots died in Paris alone, and the massacre spread to bring a total of some fifty thousand deaths throughout France. It was a senseless tragedy which will never be forgotten in that country's history. One last question, Doctor. What was Preslam working on? Stephen scratched his head. You never did tell me. Didn't I? The doctor raised his eyebrows. Oh, it uh, was the theory of germinology, that diseases were caused by bacteria. So uh, I sent him to Germany, where a scientist was working on optics, inventing a microscope that would enable Presland to see the microbes. Bemused, Stephen shook his head slowly from side to side. And you claim you don't meddle, he said, grinning. Don't be impertinent, Stephen, the doctor replied with the trace of a smile and pressed the dematerialization button. Epilogue He sat in the garden and waited for them to return as he knew they would. Doctor, they intoned together. He looked up and raised an index finger. One voice will suffice. There are some questions which still remain unanswered, a single voice continued. Sans doute, the doctor replied, speaking French for the first time in centuries. We shall deal with the apothecary Preslam first, a second voice announced. You sent him and his colleagues to Germany. Pas moi, gentlemen, the doctor replied. The abbot seal took them there. Which you had purloined, a third voice accused. You have uh, proof of that, I trust, the doctor retorted sharply. Uh, witnesses, for example? There was an awkward silence. Let us consider the issue of the chaplet girl and her relatives, a fourth voice said eventually. Uh, I hardly knew her, the doctor replied. Yet you sent her and her family to Picardy, the first voice stated. Why? It was too dangerous for them to return to their home, the doctor explained. Did they reach their destination? The second voice asked. I haven't the foggiest notion, the doctor said. Yet in another time on the planet Earth, you welcomed aboard the TARDIS a young woman of French origins named Dodo Chaplet. The third voice was menacing. Doesn't that strike you as odd? No. Why should it? The doctor half chuckled. Chaplet is to Dubois in France as Smith is to Jones in England. All good common family names, I see no necessary connection, he concluded, remembering that Dodo was the spitting image of Anne. There was another pause before the fourth Time Lord spoke. We have before us a contemporary woodcut by a witness to the assassination attempt on the life of the Admiral de Coligny, he said. 
It clearly shows the presence of a cleric in an open doorway. Can you explain that? May I see it? The doctor was fascinated and held out his hands into which the woodcut materialized. He studied it carefully and thought to himself that the artist who had made it had had a prodigious memory. Everything was exactly as it had happened. I think, gentlemen, we must assume that the cleric is the abbot of Amboise, observing the failure of the admiral's murder. He held out the woodcut which disappeared from his hands. If only de Coligny had taken one half-step further towards me, he thought wryly. Maurevere's shot would have missed, and I would be guilty as charged of changing history for better or for worse. There was a long silence, and he knew they were gone. He picked up Pepys's diary beside him on the bench, opened it at random, and tried to read. But his mind was elsewhere. He was back in the tunnels, reliving the exhilaration of those helter-skelter dashes through the darkness. Author's Note The historical events described in the massacre are factual, as were the 287 kilometres of tunnels and catacombs under Paris, some of which may still be visited. The woodcut engraving of the attempt on de Coligny's life, which shows a cowled cleric in a doorway, does exist. The author has seen it. Doctor Who, The Massacre by John Lucarotti, was read by Peter Purvis and is published by BBC Worldwide.